It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. In this week's episode, we have three stories ranging from a detective sent to investigate a strange town, all the way to a long-haul truck driver and the strange tales that he has to tell. Let's not waste any more time and dive in, as we drift deeper into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a private detective and I've been sent to investigate the disappearances of children in a nearby town. Written by Boris Basic. They were closed, I shouted, as three loud knocks resounded on the door of my office. The door burst open a second later nonetheless, and a woman in her late twenties with an icy gaze walked in. She closed the door behind her and strode up to my desk like a peacock, without uttering a word. I noticed that she wore a small cross around her neck. Didn't you hear what I said? I asked. I puffed my cigarette, allowing the smoke to steadily leave my mouth and twirl in the air, before blending in with the rest of the room's stuffy atmosphere. I put the cigarette on the ashtray filled with other butts and ashes. I need your help, officer. She spoke in a soft yet stern tone, ignoring my previous remark. Detective, I corrected her, and if you want to talk, schedule an appointment first and then we can discuss things. I opened the drawer and pulled out my flask, taking a gulp from it. The booze burnt my throat but reinvigorated me. I knew that I was slowly driving myself to my own grave with so much drinking and smoking, but I was way past caring. I returned the flask to the drawer and put the cigarette back in my mouth. The woman looked at me with a grimace of disgust. My daughter's missing, she said now with more concern in her voice. That sentence struck a nerve with me, but I tried not to show it. She sat on the chair in front of my desk and stared at me with an unrelenting gaze, so intently that I had no other choice but to give her my undivided attention. I puffed my cigarette once more, put it out in the ashtray, and I lit another one. Sorry, I don't do missing persons of that sort. I can help you find a lost relative or find out if your husband's having an affair, but not something like this. Besides, you're better off going to the police for that. I said, leaning back in my chair and staring at her. I already did. They can't help me. She said it coldly and reached inside her jacket. A moment later, she took out a photograph, which she proceeded to place on the desk in front of me. This is my daughter, Alexandra. She's 12. We live in a town called Northbury. Never heard of it, I said picking up the picture. On it was a little girl in a school uniform with short black hair smiling at the camera. I grabbed the picture and curiously inspected it, flipping it over to see if anything was written on the back, but there was nothing there. The lady responded, 
I didn't expect you to. It's a really small town with a population of 1,500. What did you say your name was, miss? I asked, sliding the picture back to her. Lydia. Lydia Burrows. And how long has your little girl been missing? I asked, a thought forming at the back of my mind that tempted me to consider taking this case. A week and it's not just my little girl. Children have been going missing in Northbury for months, vanishing without a trace. I raised my chin and tapped my fingers on the table in bafflement. I haven't heard of this on the news anywhere. I responded suspiciously. The media doesn't cover anything there. For all they're concerned, the children wandered off into the old mine and died by accident. But there's something else at play here. Something or something is responsible for kidnapping the children. I'm sure of it. When did you say that the first disappearance had occurred? Well, about six months ago. Every month, one child disappears. People know it, but they don't want to talk about it. They live their lives in hope that their kid won't be next. So why stay in that town if you knew the danger? Lydia looked down at her lap before back at me and saying, Oh, I was born and raised there. It's a very small but family-like Christian community. Being educated in the St. Peter Elementary School, I had an enlightening experience and I wanted my daughter to experience the same thing. There is no other place in America that offers the education that Northbury has. Trust me, I looked it up. So you took away from your daughter a chance for a proper education and put her in a religious school, in the middle of nowhere, I judgmentally asked, not caring about using the Lord's name in vain in front of a religious person. Over the years of my career as a cop, I've dealt with all sorts of parents and I know exactly the type that Lydia was. The religious helicopter kind which brought more trouble than help with her overzealousness and messed up their own kids beyond repair. Something about all of that made me want to take this case even more. Lydia frowned before saying, With all due respect, detective, but how I raise my daughter is none of your concern. You're right, please continue. I decided not to argue and I put out my cigarette. My daughter always arrives home by 4 p.m. after school, but last Thursday she was supposed to have extracurricular activities and come back home around 7. When 8 o'clock came, I decided to call her but she wasn't answering her phone. She's been gone ever since. Did she mention what kind of activities that she would be attending and where? No, and I didn't ask. My daughter's a good student. I don't need to hover over her and check her every step along the way. She was independent, so I gave her the freedom of responsibility. She spoke so calmly that I was amazed at the frigidity this woman displayed talking about her daughter's disappearance. I took a mental note to probe her for some more questions later and determined if she had anything to do with Alexandra's disappearance. She continued, the police found no lead on any suspects for any of the missing children, so that's why I contacted you. I know you probably don't deal with this sort of case usually, but I'm willing to pay you handsomely. How does $10,000 up front sound? And another $10,000 once the case is solved. Now hold on, I haven't even said that I would take the case yet. 
I interjected as shocked by the price that she had offered. I need an answer as soon as possible, because if you will not help me, then I'll have to look for someone else. There are six children that could be either dead or in danger. She coldly responded. I scratched my chin, observing her with a contemptuous glance. The woman must have been really desperate to come seeking help from a washed-out ex-cop. The money sounded nice, but it wasn't so much about the cash. It's been a week, and the little girl was probably already dead, just like all the others. But I knew what it was like living in anticipation, worried day and night, jumping at every call and message. And getting closure was better, no matter what the outcome was. All right, fine, I finally responded, as I lit another cigarette. Reaching Northbury was harder than expected. There were no ways to mark it on the GPS, and the people either never heard about the place or knew vaguely how to reach it. Even with Lydia's instructions, it was a pain driving there. The miles of area surrounding the town were comprised of forested hills and old perilous roads that curved on and on in an inconsistent manner until they reached a clearing leading downhill into the town. Northbury was exactly how I imagined it. A dozen blocks put together to harbor the town with barely anything of necessity located inside. Passing through made me feel like driving through a ghost town, and there were no people anywhere outside. Don't get me wrong, it looked like a nice place for a weekend getaway, but not a place that you would want to live in. I stopped the car and I opened up the folder of printed documents that Lydia sent me on email. There were a few pictures of Alexandra, her medical and school record, names of other five children who had gone missing, and potential places that I should visit for witness questioning. It was 2pm when I arrived, so I first decided to visit the St. Peter Elementary School. Barry Torres, private investigator, I'm here to see Teacher Reynolds. I introduced myself to the caretaker at the entrance. The old man raised his bald head and smiled a half-toothed grin as he said, Ah, detective, we've been expecting you. My name is Gerald, please come this way. He kindly led me through the corridor. The children are in class right now, but it'll be over in ten minutes. I see. Are you the only one working at the entrance, Gerald? I asked as we made our way to the second floor. I am. However, I have other duties to attend to, so I am never at the entrance at specific times. This is a big school and there's a lot of work to be done. Do you keep a timeline of your duties? Oh, I do, actually. We have a diary at the entrance, so if you want, I can show it to you later. Thank you. Is there another exit out of the school? There's a door all the way at the back. It leads into the schoolyard. We stopped in front of one of the classrooms. Well, here we are. Please wait until the bell rings, Gerald said. I nodded and he left the corridor with the sound of heavy footsteps echoing. I looked through the glass on the door and saw a relatively young teacher writing something on the blackboard and speaking to the students. I reached into the pocket of the inside of my jacket and I pulled out my flask. I took one sip and patiently waited until the bell rang. Only moments after it did, 
Doors started to swing open and the murmurs of little kids filled the corridor as they exited the classrooms and went for their five-minute breaks. Reynolds was in the classroom arranging some folders, so I took the chance to go inside and intercept them. Mr. Reynolds, I asked. He raised his head in my direction and nodded, suspiciously asking, Yes, what can I do for you? I'm Detective Barry Torres, and I'm here to ask you a few questions about the missing children in Northbury. Ah, Mr. Torres, it's a pleasure to meet you. Reynolds shook my hand and his demeanor seemed to suddenly change from cautious to friendly, as a smile was strewn across his face. He sat down and leaned in his chair, crossing his legs. So, how can I help you, detective? He asked, curiously. Last Thursday, Alexandra Burroughs had her last lesson for the day with you. Have you seen where she went after that? I knew that Lydia had expected me to prioritize finding her child, but all six children were equal in my mind. I would, however, need to follow the freshest trail, though. I'm afraid I don't know. I saw her exiting the classroom with her classmate, Emily Strauss, but that's all that I saw. According to the police report, Emily told the police that Alexandra stayed in school. However, she doesn't know where. The report said that Alexandra had extracurricular activities to attend to after school, but the school has no records of her having any such activities. Well, that is correct. I find it odd. Reynolds scratched his chin. I know that the school is very, very strict about the rules and they try to keep close tabs on all the students, especially with so many children that are going missing in the last six months or so. I jotted down some notes before looking back up at him. What was Alexandra like? I asked. Reynolds shrugged. Well, uh, she was very attentive in class. One of the better students. Nothing more that I can say about her. Had you noticed anything weird prior to her disappearance? Hmm, Reynolds said, before snapping his fingers and continuing. She did have one incident about a month ago. During P.E. class with Mrs. Ambers, she was apparently bullied by the other girls in the locker room. I don't know the details, so you should ask the teacher. I see. I wrote down the name of the teacher. Who was in the school during the time of her disappearance? Reynolds thought for a moment. It's hard to tell. There should be a list that you can see in the principal's office but my guess is there wasn't more than three teachers at that time, plus the janitor. I scratched my cheek. So, Alexandra was either coaxed into joining after-class activities off the grid, which were never even on the list, or she deliberately broke the rules and ran away, possibly due to the bullying, depending on how extensive it was. At this moment, I didn't have enough information to reach any kind of conclusion. Do you happen to remember seeing in which direction Alexandra went after exiting your classroom? I asked, trying to narrow down the investigation. Reynolds shook his head mournfully. He said, Sorry, I was still in the classroom when everybody left. I know that Alexandra and Emily were the last ones to leave, but I didn't see them after they went out. And what about the other missing children? Have you noticed anything strange with them prior to their disappearances, 
like bullying, behavioral changes and such. Nah, nothing like that. Some of the kids that went missing were top of the class, living their lives normally every day and then they vanished without a trace. I see, I said and I reached inside my jacket. When I pulled out my flask, Reynolds frowned and said, Ah, detective, please put that away. This is a place of God. Ah, fine, I'm almost done here anyway. I don't mean just the school, detective. This entire town is a religious sanctuary. You will find that the townsfolk are less than welcoming to the likes of the outsiders, especially someone who engages in such blasphemous activities. He made a disgusted grimace at the last statement. I learned to ignore such remarks over the years. I have everything that I need here. Thank you, Mr. Reynolds, I said and I left the classroom. I contemplated who the potential witnesses could be and the first person who came to my mind was the janitor. Oh, and one more thing, detective. Reynolds shouted as I stepped over the threshold. I turned around to face him. Who sent you here on an investigation? He asked. Uh, Lydia Burroughs. I'm sorry, who? He narrowed his eyes. The mother of Alexandra, Lydia Burroughs. Reynolds shook his head steadily as he said, That can't be right. Alexandra doesn't have a mother. What do you mean she has no mother? I asked, suspiciously frowning. I mean her mother died when Alexandra was three years old. It's been only her father Harry taking care of her. Is the father still in town? Of course, write down this address. Reynolds proceeded to tell me the address of the Burroughs family household and I jotted it down on my notepad. So, is there anybody going by the name of Lydia Burroughs in this town? I asked. Not that I know of. This is a small town and everybody knows everybody, so I can't imagine not knowing anybody from the Burroughs family. I see. I stared at the notes that I took so far. Is the principal still here? Yeah, his office is on this floor. Turn right after you exit and then right once more. You should see a door that says, Principal's Office on the right. I nodded and I left the classroom. My mind was racing faster than I had anticipated it would after the conversation with the teacher and I was furious at Lydia or whoever she was. If my client wasn't Alexandra's mother, then who was she? Moreover, was Lydia her real name, or did she choose a pseudonym? And why did she want me to start this case in the first place? There must have been something of importance to her on this investigation. Maybe she was a mother of one of the other kids, but then it still didn't make sense for her to lie. Whoever she was, she must have anticipated that I would figure out pretty quickly that she was an imposter. I made a mental note to call her later. By the time that I was out of the classroom, the murmurs of the kids had died down entirely and everybody was in class, making my footsteps echo in the hallway. I knocked on the door of the principal's office and heard a female voice say, Come in. I opened the door and to my right was a secretary's desk, with a middle-aged woman sitting by it, staring at me with curiosity. Can I help you? She asked politely with a smile. Detective Torres, a private investigator, 
I'm here to talk to the principal. Her smile dropped as I saw her get visibly nervous. Some people were not comfortable around law enforcement and despite only being a private detective, my demeanor still caused some people to feel uneasy. I attributed her anxiety to that, but reminded myself to question her if I reached a dead end with every other lead. Give me a moment, please, she said, giving me a forced smile this time. She pressed a button on the desk phone and said, Mr. Greenwood, there's a private investigator here to see you. A moment of pause ensued before a deep voice came through the speaker. Thank you, Darcy. Let him in. You can go see the principal now, the secretary smiled, as if I hadn't just heard what he said over the phone. I nodded and proceeded through the door. The office was ostentatious from first glance, contrasting the sterility of the pristine school. There was a big shelf packed with books on the right side of the room, various trophies on the other end in diplomas, certificates, and thank you notes on the walls. In front of me, behind the desk, sat a burly, bald black man with fingers crossed. Upon my entrance, he stood up and approached to shake hands. Mr. Torres, he said. Caretaker Gerald told me that you were here. Please, take a seat. He gestured to the wooden chair in front of the desk. I slumped down as he sat down in his own, more comfortable leather seat, going back to the previous position of crossing his fingers. Would you like a drink, detective? I have some whiskey here if you would like, he asked. The focus this man had on the materialistic items made me question his dedication to the learnings that his school was offering. I thought this was a place of God, I sarcastically remarked. Greenwood gave me a smile that looked like he was annoyed before saying, So what can I do for you, detective? I assume you're here because of the missing children. Correct. I know you're busy, so I'll get right to it. I need you to tell me about Alexandra Burroughs. What would you like to know? He cleared his throat and leaned back in his chair. Can you tell me who was in school at the time of her disappearance? Well, yes, that would be math teacher Reynolds, Bible study teacher Mr. Schaefer and Mrs. Wilkins, the discipline teacher. And then there was, of course, caretaker Gerald, cleaning lady Bryant, and myself. Is there a way for you to confirm if everybody else left the school by that time? No, not me, but Mrs. Bryant's can, because she's responsible for cleaning all the classrooms, so if anybody else remained on the school premises, she would have known. And where were you between the times of 4pm and 7pm? Right here in my office. I often have a lot of paperwork to do so I stay overtime, but around 5pm I headed home. I jotted everything down while Greenwood swiveled in his chair with a squeaking noise, staring at me in anticipation. He glanced intermittently from my eyes to my notes. I continued, Alright, so what after class activities was Alexandra usually taking? Well, she participated in lots of activities. I can't count them all, detective. You need to understand that she was one of the better students in our school. She went above and beyond in everything that she did. I was told that she had no extracurricular activities assigned on the day of her disappearance. Well, that is correct. 
and we don't know who told her to attend the activity, nor what activity it was. And what can you tell me about the other missing children? Not much. They disappeared so abruptly that nobody could have foreseen it happening. Where were they when they disappeared? The disappearances were very random. Alexandra went missing in school, but the others either never made it home from school, or they went missing while they were out somewhere. I see. A lot of people speculate that they went missing in the mines. What can you tell me about that? Oh, that. He chuckled as he shook his head. I wouldn't concern myself too much with rumors, detective. The old mines have been closed off for years ever since the accident. What accident? I asked. Greenwood continued. There was a huge cave-in back in the 70s, and since then the mines have been cordoned off. There's no way for those kids to get anywhere near there. He put his hands on his lap now as he continued swiveling left and right, slowly. I tapped the pen on my notepad repeatedly, pursing my lips. I started to feel exhausted, and I needed a drink or a smoke. I stared at the names of the potential suspects that I had wrote down. Reynolds, Schaefer, Wilkins, Gerald, Bryans. I talked to Reynolds, but I still had a lot of work to do. I decided to narrow it down and go by what the principal said, by asking the cleaning lady who she saw in school last Thursday. That could help me speed things up. Is Mrs. Bryans in school right now? I asked, underlining her name on my notepad. Yes, go talk to Gerald. He'll know exactly where she is, Greenwood said. I have one final question. I looked up at him to see him staring at me in anticipation, still swiveling steadily. Go ahead, he smiled. Who is Lydia Burroughs? Greenwood stopped swiveling in his chair and suddenly without the squeaking, silence fell on the room. He frowned and scratched his chin as if trying to remember something. Doesn't ring a bell. He slowly shook his head as we maintained eye contact. I leaned forward and asked, Are you sure about that, Mr. Greenwood? He inhaled through his nose loudly and looked away for a moment, before he shrugged and said, Could be a relative of Alexandra Burroughs, but I don't know anyone by that name. And let me assure you, I know everybody in this town. I silently nodded, staring down at my notes again. I should get going now. Thank you for your help, Mr. Greenwood. I stood up and he did the same. He saw me to the door and on my way out, he said. What happened to those children is a tragedy and our town hasn't been the same since it started. Thank you for putting effort into this matter. But try not to dig too deep. You remember what Nietzsche said about the abyss. Some things are best left alone, detective. I wasn't sure if this was a heartfelt warning or a threat. Before I could give him a proper response, he politely closed the door in my face. I said goodbye to the secretary and went down to Gerald. He was sitting behind the counter at the entrance, reading a book when I arrived. Upon hearing footsteps, he raised his head and upon realizing it was coming, he placed the bookmark between the pages that he was reading and he stood up to greet me. Detective, how's your investigation going? He asked. Not sure yet. I have more questions than answers. I need you to tell me where the cleaner is. Mrs. Bryans, he asked. 
I saw her in classroom 105 around 10 minutes ago. She cleans in a linear but a quick way, so expect to find her in around 108, 109 maybe. Uh, thank you. I actually have a few questions for you as well before I leave. Oh, go on ahead, I'll do everything in my power to assist you. He sat on the table and curiously observed me. I put my hands in the pockets of my coat and said, You were here on the day that Alexandra Burroughs had disappeared, correct? That I was. Have you seen where she went after her lessons? No, sorry, like I said. I have to hop from place to place and I spent most of the day fixing the fence last Thursday. Have you noticed anyone or anything suspicious that day on the school grounds? Hmm, he thought for a moment, staring at the ceiling. He crossed his arms, revealing a small tattoo on his forearm. When he noticed me staring, he pulled down his sleeves quickly. A moment later, he shook his head with a disappointed expression on his face, shrugged and said, Sorry, detective. Nothing suspicious happened that day. I did my work, went home, and that was it. I scratched my chin, staring him down. Something was strange about the way that he responded and stared at me nervously, as if waiting to see if I believed him. When I arrived earlier, you said that you had been expecting me. Who informed you of my arrival? One of the parents called today and said that they hired a private eye and that he would be here shortly. They blurted everything out so quickly that I never managed to catch their name though. I cannot believe that Lydia would sabotage the investigation like this. Calling in advance and letting witnesses know that you're coming to question them is the worst thing that you can do. It gives them ample time to prepare their responses and even get their stories straight among each other. I was beyond mad at the client despite the enormous pay. I see. Does the name Lydia Burroughs ring a bell to you? I asked, intent on pressing a more. Sorry, sir. He apologized again with a grievous expression on his face. I know this town well and ain't nobody from the Burroughs family under the name Lydia that I know of. My phone started to ring and I excused myself. The caller ID said that it was Lydia, so I hastily picked it up, putting some distance between myself and the caretaker. Hello? I asked. Detective Torres. A familiar, feminine voice resounded on the other end. Did you make it safely to Northbury? I did, and I don't appreciate you calling to let the witnesses know that I'm coming. What do you mean? You called the caretaker hours ago to tell them that I was on my way, and that's what he said. There was a pause before she said in a panicked, yet somehow at the same time calm tone. Detective, listen. I never made that call, which means they're already onto you. You have to be careful who you trust. Your life could be in danger. What are you talking about? I asked skeptically. I'm going to send you my address in an image. If you see anyone with the same symbol as on the image, stay away from them and don't trust anything they say. Do you understand? I was furious at her for dictating terms like this and expecting me to trust her after lying to me so blatantly. I said, yeah, Speaking of that, I'm already finding out interesting things on my investigation. I smirked. Oh, she asked. Yeah, for instance, no one here seems to know anybody called Lydia Burroughs. 
They also claim that Alexandra's mother is dead. So why did you lie to me? There was another pause on the line, but I knew she heard me. A moment later, she responded, I promise to tell you everything in person, but not over the phone. Please stop by my place as soon as you're done at the school. Fine, I'll be there later, I said. Thank you, officer. Detective, I corrected her, but she had already hung up. I went back to Gerald, who was reading this book again until I returned to him. Now, about the cleaning lady. I started when my phone had vibrated. I picked it up and opened the message sent by Lydia. There is an address and under that a text which said, If you see anybody with this symbol, stay away from them. Under the text was an image of an upside down cross inside a triangle. I probably stared at the picture for too long because Gerald said, Something wrong, detective. I looked up at him to see him staring at me with undivided attention. I put my phone back in my pocket. No, nothing, I said, glancing at his sleeve-covered forearms again. The forearms which had the same tattoo as the symbol in the picture. Mrs. Bryan's the cleaning lady was in room 110, neatly arranging the desks and chairs facing away from me. The classroom already seemed tidy enough to me when I arrived and I was sure that it was due to the children's manners. She didn't notice when I came inside so I called out to her. Mrs. Bryan's. She jumped and turned around, holding her hand on her chest, visibly startled. My goodness. She chuckled at her own scare. Sorry, I didn't mean to surprise you. I'm Detective Torres. Can I ask you a few questions? Why, yes, of course. She tucked one more chair under the desk neatly and approached to shake my hand with a smile. How can I help you, sir? She asked. I'm here to investigate the missing student's case. I take it you were here last Thursday between the hours of 4pm and 7pm, correct? Yes, sir. She nodded energetically. Have you seen this girl anywhere during that time? I pulled out the photo of Alexandra and showed it to Mrs. Bryans. Her face lit up with a smile which I took as a sign of her recognizing the victim. She said, Oh yes, I have seen her. I think it was around 4.45pm that I saw her going down into the basement. I was already done cleaning there so I didn't go down anymore. The basement? Well yes, there is a faith and spirituality classroom down there. So I suppose she had an after-class activity to attend. Are there any other classrooms down there? I asked. Oh no, the rest of the rooms are for staff only, like storages, a boiler room, and so on. Who teaches faith and spirituality? Well, that would be Mr. Myers. And was Mr. Myers in school during that time? No, sir, I saw him leave at around 2.30pm. So that rules him out as a suspect. Alexandra went down to the basement for some reason. Again, neither somebody lured her to have a class there, or she went on her own volition. The first one seemed more plausible, though. Mrs. Bryans, who else did you see in school during these hours? She looked away for a moment, thinking before saying, Well, there was Mr. Schaefer and Mrs. Wilkins. Gerald was here, too. Oh, and of course, Principal Greenwood. And did you see any of them going to any places outside of their classrooms and offices? Places that they shouldn't have been. 
Not that I can think of. She thought for a moment again before saying, No, actually, Principal Greenwood did leave his office once. He went into the schoolyard and stayed there for a few minutes before returning to his office. Any idea why you went outside? No, sir. Gerald was out there fixing the fence, so I suppose you wanted to talk to him about something. And when was this? Sometime around 4.30 p.m. He went back to his office around 10 minutes later and left the school around 5. Around the same time as Gerald. I left shortly after. You have a good memory, Mrs. Bryans. I gave her a faint smile, feeling the muscles in my face cramping up. She chuckled heartily and said, And when you work here for as long as I do, you memorize the people's patterns, sir. So, what irregular patterns have you noticed on that day, ma'am? Only the one with the principal. He never leaves his office, let alone goes to Gerald to talk to him. Mr. Greenwood isn't fond of chasing people around, so he instead invites them to his office when they need something, regardless of whether they're busy with work or not. It bothered us a lot at first, but later we got used to it. That's why I found it odd that he went out like that. Maybe he couldn't get in contact with Gerald and decided to look for him instead, I asked. The cleaning lady shook her head. Sir, I've been cleaning after Principal Greenwood for over 15 years now, and if he personally comes looking for you, it can only mean that it's a big emergency. There are no exceptions. And let me get this straight. After you saw Alexandra go down there, you didn't see her come out. No, sir, but I could have missed her because by the time that she was done, I was probably on the third floor. Is there a way that you could have maybe missed somebody else coming in and out of the school? I asked. It is possible, sir, but the person would have to have been very sneaky. That's all I need from you, Mrs. Bryans. Thank you for your time. Of course, sir, Owen. Please don't tell the principal that I told you anything. I won't. I decided to go down to the basement to investigate the potential crime scene, in hopes of finding some evidence. On my way down there, I kept thinking about Gerald and his tattoo. What did the tattoo mean? Was it some kind of cult? Is that why Lydia wasn't being honest with me? If this was some sort of illegal organization, then the entire police force may have trouble cracking it, let alone an alcoholic ex-cop going in on a one-man mission. Gerald was suspicious, but then again, so was the principal. Didn't he say that he had a lot of paperwork to do and stayed in his office the whole time on the day of the disappearance? You would think that he would mention going out on a crucial day, such as the one when a kid goes missing. If the cleaning lady's story was correct, then Greenwood couldn't have been down in the basement in time to harm the girl, but that didn't mean that he wasn't somehow involved. The basement was a lot colder than the other floors and absent of any bright lights. I could see how walking through here would be terrifying for children, especially if they were alone during nighttime. I located the Faith and Spirituality classroom and I went inside. It resembled a chapel more than a classroom with rows of benches on both sides of the room, a small altar at the far end and a blackboard on the wall behind. 
And I heard people say that they often get this overwhelmingly euphoric feeling when they enter the house of God, but I felt uneasy instead. I pulled out my flask and took a gleeful sip before putting it back and getting to work. As expected, the place was pristine and spotless. I doubted that I would find any evidence whatsoever, but I decided to comb through anyway. Only five minutes into my search, I caught something at the corner of my eye. I wouldn't have noticed it at all unless I came all the way around to the other side of the altar. And once I was there, I saw a tiny cross tucked under it, blending in with the colors around it. I approached it and grabbed it between my index and thumb. It was tiny and caked with a layer of dirt. As I raised it, I realized that the cross was actually a necklace, the same kind that Lydia was wearing. I pulled out Alexandra's picture and sure enough she wore one in it. This was a religious school of course, so it could have been anyone's. But the thing is, I saw nobody else wearing it over the uniforms. Upon closer inspection of the necklace, I realized that it had been broken at one of the chains which further enforced my theory that something strange had happened here. I examined the nearby area, but found no traces of blood or anything else wrong. It has been a week though, so anything could have happened since then. I cleaned the cross and I put it in my pocket. If Lydia proved to be trustworthy, I would show it to her face and ask her if she recognized it. One thing was for sure though, something had happened here. A struggle or something. The kids here were so disciplined it didn't seem like they would get violent with each other. At least, not around an altar which I assumed they were forbidden from even approaching. I decided to go back and question Gerald again, but by the time that I got to the entrance, he was already gone. The principal had left too, so I would have to leave the questioning for tomorrow. I checked Lydia's address and drove to it. She lived in an average house, devoid of any prominent features in an even quieter part of the town, isolated from the rest of the households. I rang the doorbell and she opened the door, greeting me with a smile. Detective, come on in, she said. I nodded and followed her inside to the living room. We sat down and she offered me a drink. I refused and took a sip from my own flask, before deciding to focus on business. So, what have you come up with, detective? She asked. No. First, you're going to give me some answers, I said. She crossed her legs and put her hands around her knee. Fair enough. What do you want to know? She asked. Who are you? I leaned forward. My real name is Lydia Burroughs, as you've already found out. Alexandra's mother, my sister, died years ago. You're Alexandra's aunt. I asked. She nodded. Then why does everybody in town say they don't know you? Because they don't know my real name. I go by the name Lydia Stevens, a lonely woman with no family living at the edge of the town. That still doesn't answer a lot of the other questions that I have, I said. And I will give you the answers in a bit. Tell me, have you found out anything useful on your investigation so far? I put my hand in my pocket and pulled out the tiny cross. Lydia widened her eyes and opened her mouth, immediately standing up and grabbing the cross. 
She examined it with relish as she said, This was Alexandra's, no doubt about it. You see the engraving over here. She pointed to extremely tiny letters, easily missable. She said, It says, May God protect you, daughter. It was given to her by your mother. Where did you find it? She spoke with energy in her voice in contrast to the frigidity that she often displayed. She sat back down and stared at me expecting an answer. In the school basement, whoever kidnapped her, they did it there. She gently placed the cross on the table and cleared her throat. She said, You remember the picture that I sent you? Did you see anybody with it? The caretaker had a tattoo. What does it mean? It's the mark of a very old, very secret society in this town. They've been in this town since well, since the beginning. They've infiltrated the town years ago and they continue to poison it. They have no name and the people here are too afraid to give them one. The truth is, detective, they haven't abducted only six children. They've abducted a 48. What? I scoffed. Since around the mid-70s, the order has been abducting one child every year. The children were never found, but it's well known what happened to them. What did happen to them? I asked, at the edge of my seat, curious. The order believes that there's a corruption in town. They believe that sacrifices are needed in order to appease the beast that resides within. Most of the children were abducted and sacrificed, but some of them... Some of them were willingly sacrificed by their own parents, the members of the order. So why did they start kidnapping children monthly now? They believe that the deity they seek to appease has grown in appetite and requires more innocent souls. They tried abducting children twice a year, but since they didn't work, they increased the number in hopes to stop the corruption. That's crazy. A secret society is abducting children and sacrificing them to a demon. You expect me to believe that crap, I said as I stared at her judgmentally. Lydia stood up as she crossed her arms and walked over to the bookshelf behind her. Are you a religious man, detective? She asked, looking through the books. She turned her head to face me while holding one hand on the bookshelf. No, I sternly said. Is it because of your daughter? She asked with a curious expression on her face. I shot my head up to her, suddenly feeling my heart beginning to race. Lydia took out a thick book and sat back down in front of me, placing the book on the coffee table. Only then did I notice the big cross and a triangle symbol across the cover. I know about you, detective, she said confidently. I know you were a homicide detective who worked in a case involving a cult. I know how they... I'm sorry. I know that losing a child must be very difficult. I felt anger boiling up in me. Who was she to talk about my daughter as if she knew her? I took out a cigarette and I lit it up, bottling up my anger. I puffed it and said, With all due respect, I don't think you do know. Amber was only eight. She was full of life and she had a bright future ahead of her. She wanted to become a doctor, but then her future was taken away from her by some sicko who burnt her alive because he believed God had told him to do so. Lydia stared down at the book with a sorrowful expression on her face. 
There was a long silence until I puffed my cigarette once more and said, If there is a god, Mrs. Burroughs, then he is a cruel one to create such monsters in the world. And he is even more cruel for allowing innocent children to die in such gruesome ways. She tentatively looked up at me. Did you quit the force after that? She said. I shook my head. Yeah, but not before I got revenge for Amber. The call to dirty killed dozens of children. Everybody was afraid to take the case and track them down, fearing that their family would end up like mine. I had nothing else to lose, so I worked on the case day and night for an entire year. Eventually, I found them and there was a raid in their hideout. Most of them were captured and sentenced to life, but that was not enough for me. I used my connections to bribe the prison guards and the cult leader's cellmate. I felt anger seeping out of me as I talked about this. Let's just say that the leader renounced all his gods and begged for mercy before he died. There was another long pause before Lydia said, That's why I never told you about my true intentions. If I had told you that there was a cult involved in all of this, you never would have taken the case, right? She asked. Well, I nodded and she was right. There was no way that it would have taken on another cult case, despite having nothing more to lose. So this cult... I said, how do you even know about them if they're so secretive? Well, that's another thing that I didn't tell you, she said. She pulled up her sleeve to reveal the tattoo of the cross inside a triangle on her forearm. I used to be a member, she said. I puffed my cigarette as I stared at Lydia's tattoo. I didn't know what to think exactly, so I simply stared. Why are you telling me all this now? I asked. Well, because I owe it to you. I want you to trust me. I want Alexandra found, dead or alive. She's my niece and I love her. So, if you were a member, then you know who the others are and where we can find them. It's not that simple, she shook her head. Members are required to wear masks at all times during the meetings. I could never tell who was in the room with me. Important missions are entrusted only to those called devoted and the hideout of the order is changed often to avoid getting caught. I see, I responded. There was silence in the room for a while before she said, Do you have any leads, detective? I do, I nodded. The caretaker and the principal. I need to question them again tomorrow. Well, if you like, you can stay here for the night. There is also a motel nearby, but they charge a lot since we rarely get any visitors. Thank you. I spent the night at Lydia's place and the following morning I went back to the school. The caretaker, Gerald, was at the entrance, reading his book as usually when I arrived. When he saw me, a forced smile was strewn across his face as he stopped reading. He looked like somebody who managed to get rid of the vermin in his garden, only to see them back there again the following day. A detective, you still have business here, I assume, he asked. I took a look at the book that he was reading, God Can and God Will by Ronald Fry. I didn't see the symbol of the order anywhere, but I figured they probably would not want to advertise it so openly. Good read, I asked. It sure is, Gerald said. 
It's about a man who found his purpose in life in prison through God. He explains that all of us can change and atone for our sins. Hmm. And do you think you would find yourself through God if you were put in prison now? I grunted and sat on the edge of the desk, towering above the caretaker. He didn't answer. That's an interesting tattoo that you have on your forearm, Gerald. I said, pointing to a sleeve-covered arm. It's a reminder, Gerald said with a grievous expression on his face. Oh yeah, a reminder of what? A reminder of the mistakes I made in my life. Of what I am and what I am not anymore, he retorted. I gave him a courteous smile. I pulled on my notes and said, Mr. Gerald, when we talked yesterday, you failed to tell me that on the day of Alexandra's disappearance, Principal Greenwood came to speak to you. Why? Gerald shrugged. I didn't think that it was important. I must have forgotten. He scratched the back of his head, a sure sign that he was uncomfortable. What did the principal want to talk to you about? I asked, sternly staring at him. Nothing special just gave me a task to resolve around the school. That kind of thing. He shrugged again. What task did he give you? I asked. He started to stutter before saying, Um, mowing the lawn, oiling the gate, something like that. I tapped my notes with the pen slowly while staring at him. He moved his gaze away as if too nervous to look at me. I said, it doesn't seem very likely that he would just come to talk to you for that. Gerald simply shrugged again, looking down at the book. I turned to face him and leaned in closer. Gerald, spare me the BS, I said. If you're somehow involved in the little girl's disappearance, then you'll be going to prison for long enough to write a book like Ronald Fry here. And right now things aren't looking too good for you. You understand. And Gerald sighed, tapping his foot on the ground nervously. He looked at me and said, There's a man who came here last Thursday. I don't know who he is, which is strange because I know everybody around these parts. But he came asking for Principal Greenwood. I pointed him to the principal's office and around ten minutes later, Greenwood came to see me. Uh-huh, I didn't want to interrupt him now, Gerald said. He told me to not mention to anyone that I saw that stranger, not even to the police. He threatened that he would fire me and that I would be in even more trouble with uh, someone else. Something about the way that he hesitated before saying that last part, it made me realize that we were on the same page. And so I got daring. The order, I asked. He looked at me with perplexity in his eyes, obviously surprised that I knew about the order. How do you know about that? He asked. Your tattoo. You're wearing the mark. Yeah, but I'm not a member anymore. Haven't been in over 30 years. I've been hearing stories about them my whole life when I was young. About cleansing of corruption and so on and... I decided to join them when I was only 18. I didn't know back then what they did to children, so when I found out, I got out of the group. You joined a secret cult, only to leave shortly after, and they let you just go like that, I asked. Gerald pulled the collar of his shirt down to reveal the tattoo on his upper chest. It was a similar tattoo to the one on his arm, 
only the cross was upright and the triangle was upside down. This is their brand on the people who decide to leave. It's a mark of shame and weakness, but also a reminder that revealing anything about the cult can have dire consequences. It's also a warning for other members not to talk to the likes of us. He hastily pulled the collar back up, as if covering his private parts and stared back down at the book. With visible shame in his eyes, he said, I know that I shouldn't have listened to Greenwood, but the cult is more powerful than you think. He threatened that my son could be the next one to go missing if I talk. I had no choice, you understand that, don't you? I didn't really feel pity for Gerald even though I understood his situation. I put my notes back in my pocket and stood up. Yeah, I understand, I said. This man who came to the school, how did he look? I couldn't see his face clearly since he had a hoodie over his head. I see. I think I'm going to pay a visit to the principal. I said, and I left faster than Gerald could respond again. Darcy jerked her head in my direction when I burst inside the principal's office. I didn't stop to greet her, but instead I went for the door. Sir, sir, you can't go in there, she shouted after me, but I was already inside the office. She closed the door behind me and faced Principal Greenwood, who had a baffled look on his face sitting behind the desk. Detective Torres, can I help you? He asked somewhat impatiently as I sat in the chair in front. Greenwood, yes you can. You can start by telling me who you talked to last Thursday. We already talked about this, detective. I already talked to Mrs. Bryans and Gerald. The cleaning lady said that she saw you leave your office, which is uncanny of you. And Gerald told me about the shady person who came asking for you. Does any of that ring a bell? Greenwood breathed in through his nose loudly and thought for a moment before saying, There was one person in school come to think of it, but he and I did not talk. Oh, is that so? Why did he ask for you then, and why do you threaten the caretaker? Greenwood licked his lips and frowned as if preparing to say something important. Detective, I don't appreciate you barging into my office like this with false accusations. You're not a police officer, so you have no authority here. Now, why don't you haul your drunk butt out of here before I throw you out myself? He stared at me with his fingers crossed, his lips contorted into a thin slit and he frowned. I stared at him for a moment. I nodded defeatedly and stood up, making my way back to the door. There was a key in the doorknob and so I turned it and I locked the door. I put the key in my pocket and I strode back to the principal. His look of anger turned into one of confusion. Hey, what are you? Before he could finish his sentence, I punched him in the face, knocking him out of the chair and onto his back. He grabbed his face painfully and I took him by the hand, lifting his arm up and pulling his sleeve. Sure enough, the tattoo of the order was on his arm, prominent against his bulky forearm. I punched him in the face once more and grabbed him by his shirt. Who did you talk to? I spat in his face while he widened his eyes in fear, panting. You're out of your mind, I didn't. Before he could finish, I punched him once more in the face and then in the gut. He coughed and raised his hand in a stop sign, saying, Okay, okay. There is a guy who came into my office here on Thursday, but I don't know what he wanted. Greenwood recited. B.S. I shouted and prepared to punch him again. 
Wait, please, I'll tell you. There was a knock on the door in Darcy's muffled voice as she asked, Principal Greenwood, is everything okay? The principal looked in the direction of the door and shouted, Darcy, call the... I punched him again before he could say anything more and he groaned in pain. My patience was nearly down to zero by then, so I reached behind my back and pulled out my revolver. The principal grew even more afraid at this. I placed the nuzzle of the gun on his forehead and shouted, Talk! I can't, they'll kill me! Well, I'm about to kill you as well, so talk. I don't know his name, I swear. He's a new member of the order and he came to the school on the arrangement to take Alexandra. I pulled the hammer of the gun back and Greenwood started talking even faster. I arranged a false after-class activity for her to attend. She went down into the basement. The guy with the scar went there to kidnap her and that's the last that I ever heard of either of them, I swear. Where is she now? Where? I shouted. I don't know. I was only told to organize it. I don't know where she was taken. They don't tell me anything. Where's the order's hideout? I, I don't know. I backhanded him and he shouted. I swear that I don't know. I just joined the order a month ago. They don't let their new members in on their meetings. How do I find the guy with the scar? He's often in the good siblings bar on Mitchell Street. That's where he and I meet at. I dropped the principal on the ground and walked over to the door. As he regained his breath, he said, You don't know who you're messing with, Torres. The order's everywhere. When they find you, they'll... They'll what? You better hope that that girl's still alive, Greenwood. Because if the order doesn't kill you, I will. And with that, I unlocked the door and exited, with Darcy's frightened gaze following me intently the whole time. A little later, I was on the street in front of my car lighting a cigarette. I stared at the school, which stood like a silent behemoth, not a single sound of people's voices or cars on the street. I puffed, the wisps of smoke merging and disappearing into the air. It was still too early for me to go to the good siblings' bar, but I could go and investigate it. Who was the man who came to the school? Clearly, he was a member of the cult responsible for kidnapping Alexandra. But where did he take her? The cult itself seems to be really careful. If somebody like the principal didn't know their plans, they must have entrusted the entire kidnapping plan to only their highest ranking members. But I was nowhere near finding them. I was about to open the door of my car when I heard the sound of a gun being cocked behind my head. Don't move, a somewhat rough female voice said. I slowly put my hands on the roof of my car and said, This isn't the first time that I've been held at gunpoint, you know. Well, it could be your last. I slowly put my hand on the cigarette in my mouth and puffed it once more, before letting the butt drop next to me. So you're from the order, I asked. Shut up, the lady said and pressed the barrel of the gun closer to my head. She checked my right coat pocket and then the left one putting her hand inside to see if I had anything in there. She said, You're looking for the kidnapper, right? Yeah. Well, he's dead, the lady said. Screwed something up big time so they hadn't killed this morning. Crap. Now I lost my only lead. The lady took a step back and said, You've been meddling in our business too much. We don't usually let people go, but I'm feeling generous today, so I'm going to give you a fair warning. 
Leave Northbury and forget everything you saw here, you understand. I shook my head. I can't do that, and you know it. I'm in too deep. So if you're going to shoot me, just shoot. There was no response. Hey, you don't have to leave me hanging here. I repeated and I dared to slowly turn around. No one was there. I put my hands in my coat pockets, cursing under my breath. I felt something in my left pocket and when I pulled out my hand, I saw a small, wrinkled piece of paper. On it was a hastily written address. Maybe it's a trap, I thought as I stared at the address, but that didn't make sense. The cult lady could have just shot me right there or taken me hostage if they had planned on performing some BS ritual on me. My only lead being dead, I decided to visit the address. Everything was close in Northbury, so I was there in only five minutes. The address given to me was an old house in what looked like a not-so-nice part of town. I assumed that this was one of those morbid places that would be left out of the pamphlets if they were to promote tourism here. I contemplated waiting in the car for the person who lived there to go out so I could catch them by surprise, but given the fact that there were no other cars around, I was as inconspicuous as a polar bear in a jungle. I finished one sig and got out of my car, double-checking the address and the paper and the number of the house. I knocked on the door, which looked like it was just about ready to fall from its hinges, and I waited. There was a sound of hushed, muffled voices coming from inside, and a batter of heavy footsteps resounding from within. A moment later, the sound of unlocking clicked loudly and the door opened slightly ajar, just enough for me to see half of a thin and sunken face. A door chain stretched itself between the inside of the wall and the door itself, as the man stared at me with a blue eye from behind his cover. Yes? He asked, skeptically eyeing me from top to bottom. I'm Detective Torres. I'm here to investigate the missing children's case. Can I come inside? The man thought for a moment before timidly answering. I'm sorry, now is not really a good time. He tried closing the door in my face, but I stopped him and said, Please, all I'm asking is for a few minutes of your time. Someone's life could be in danger. The man stared at me for a long moment before shutting the door in my face. A moment later, the sound of metal sliding resounded and the door opened wildly. In front of me stood a man as skinny as I expected him to be, with bulging eyes and greasy brown hair which fell down to his shoulders, and an oversized t-shirt. He stepped aside and allowed me to go in. The inside of the house was a mess with wrappers and containers from ordered and fast food, strewn all over the coffee table and knocked over onto the floor. Sorry about the mess, I've been working a lot lately and I didn't have any time for anything else, he said. He picked up the Chinese takeaway plastic from the sofa and offered me to sit, but I politely declined. Staring at the mess made me think that a rat was going to jump out of the pile, but at the same time this lifestyle reminded me very much of my own. Only instead of food I had empty booze bottles all over the place and it reeked of cheap alcohol. I glanced at the man's forearms. He had a bandage over his left arm. Did you injure yourself? I asked. Yeah, I broke a glass in the kitchen a few days ago, he said, looking at his forearm and then back at me. Can I see? It might be serious, I said, 
That's really nasty. I think it's not a good idea. The man suddenly seemed to become nervous. I'm fine with that, but I need to check to make sure that you're not infected. I really don't. Please, I insist. It was an order and he knew it. He hesitated, looking as if he was thinking of what to use as an excuse. A moment later, he started unwrapping his bandage. I put my hand behind my back, ready to draw my gun in case he tried to do something stupid. The bandages came off layer after layer until they turned to pink and then red. When he finally reached the end and took it off, along with the gauze, he displayed his forearm to me. There was a wound about two inches long and one inch wide, in the crude shape of a rectangle, as if the skin had been flayed off. That must have been one heck of a shard, I said. He didn't respond. I turned around and took a few slow steps, glancing around the room. I heard voices. Is somebody else in here with you? I asked. No, it's just me, the man responded a little too quickly. Just then, there was a thud from my nearby closet door to my right. What was that? I asked. Nothing, it's just the washing machine, the man said staring at me with the expression of someone who was playing the hot and cold game with you and hoping that you wouldn't look in the right place. I ignored him and drew my gun. I grabbed the doorknob and got my gun ready. Detective, wait, don't open it. The man shouted, but it was too late. I had already swung the door open and pointed at the figure that was seated inside. I immediately lowered my gun at the sight in front of me. A little girl with messy black hair dirty school clothes and a scared look in her eye. It was Alexandra. Detective, I can explain. It's not what you think, the man said. Shut up. I pointed the gun at him. On your knees. You don't know what you're doing, he said. I said on your knees. The man looked down and then swung his arm, flinging the nearby lamp in my direction. It hit my shoulder and in that moment the man tackled me. I can't let you take her back, he said, as we wrestled with the gun. A loud bang resounded and the man fell on top of me. Alexandra screamed and I pushed the assailant off me, his lifeless body slumping onto its back, staring vacantly at the ceiling. He was dead. Are you okay? I'm here to save you, I said, gesturing for her to come to me. I wasn't sure if I could trust the cops. The order seemed to be deeply rooted inside the town and I couldn't tell if the police were in on it. I called the only person that I could, Lydia. She arrived within minutes and when she saw Alexandra, she let out a sigh of relief and rushed to her niece to hug her. But that was it. She seemed only relieved and not ecstatic as I imagined a parent should be when he finds his missing child. Alexandra herself seemed catatonic the whole time and still frightened even when looking at the familiar face of her aunt. Lydia finally stood up and said, Thank you, detective, for finding Alexandra for us. I felt good. I had just saved the life of a little girl, something that I couldn't do for my own daughter. For the first time in a long time, I sincerely smiled. That was until my eyes fell on Lydia's upper chest, revealing above her dress. There was nothing there, no markings. She smiled and I heard the door burst open. I turned around to see a group of hardened, burly men and one short-haired woman standing menacingly in the doorway. 
She almost managed to escape the order, Lydia said. I turned to face her and felt a blunt hit on the back of my head. As it started to ring in my ears, I found myself on the ground, my vision blurry and spinning. I heard Alexandra scream for them to stop as one of the men grabbed her roughly and held her back. Lydia crouched in front of me and said, You see, the Order never managed to kidnap Alexandra. It was entrusted to one of our members, but then Samir had to do what he thought was right. She pointed to the man that I had killed earlier. His conscience got in the way and he decided to take her into his home, to keep her safe from the Order. So here we are. She stood up slowly and faced away from me, crossing her arms. I tried to wriggle out of the grip of my assailants, but was instead met with a kick to the side. Tears walled in my eyes from the pain, and I took a mental note not to try or resist again. Lydia approached a now much more frightened Alexandra and put her hand on the child's tear-covered face. But now that she's here, we can finally proceed with the ritual. Lydia said for the first time with some audible emotion, audible happiness in her voice. She walked around me and left the room while the man holding Alexandra followed. What do we do with the pig and the traitor? The man holding me had asked. Leave him to me, the short-haired woman said, as she took my gun from one of the men. I recognized that voice. Alright, get back to the sacred site as soon as you dispose of them. The man holding me said, and I felt his grip loosen. Soon everybody had left the room and it was only Sam, the woman and I remaining. She walked over to the window and peered through before pulling the blinds over the windows, further dimming the room. She stood in front of me, towering as she gave me a disgusted glance. You idiot. What were you thinking trusting Lydia? She shook her head. She threw my gun in front of me which clattered on the ground. She walked over to the door and opened it. When she saw me staring back at her, confused, she rolled her eyes and said, Well, come on, old man, we gotta get to the mines. I stood up with a loud groan. I'm not that old, I said as I placed the gun behind my back. The short-haired lady was already outside and waiting in front of my car. I strode to her and opened the door. My mind was still racing a million thoughts a second and I didn't even stop to think if she would double-cross me like Lydia did but it wouldn't make sense for her to do that. They had me pinned down and she didn't have to let me go right. We got in the car and she said, Just go straight, I'll tell you when to turn and step on it. She was stern in her attitude and the first thought that came to my mind as I put my keys into the ignition was, Her poor husband. The tires screeched as we drove off. If we hurry up, we should be there before they kill the girl, she said. You're the one who held me at gunpoint earlier today now, aren't you? The one who gave me the address. I said glancing at her. She nodded and put her elbow on the side of the window exposing the order's tattoo. Yeah, name's Melissa. I've been trying to find Alexandra for weeks. You what? I asked. Yeah, I infiltrated the order to find out what's going on with the missing children. But since I'm relatively new, I couldn't do anything openly since they were always watching me. So your timing with the arrival is excellent, detective. I scoffed, shaking my head. Are you a cop? I asked. Oh no, just a Northbury citizen. 
So what is really going on here? I asked. Melissa sighed. Lydia is the leader of the order, at least I think she is. She's the one who decides whose kid gets sacrificed to cleanse the corruption in the town. She used quotation marks with her fingers. A few years ago, she sacrificed her own daughter, burnt her alive. Christ, did she do something to Alex's mother? Oh no, that wasn't her, but I'm sure she would have, if the kid's mom had interfered. She's ruthless and will not stop at anything to complete the ritual. I once saw her cut out a guy's tongue for asking her why they needed to sacrifice kids. I scratched my chin, giving my brain time to process what I was hearing. I said, So, let me get this straight. The cult organized for Alexandra to be kidnapped, but a renegade cultist decided to rescue her before the cult could take her. And then, since Lydia couldn't find her, she hired me to solve the case for her. Played you like a piano, Melissa said. How could she? You didn't have to kill that guy in the house. She judgmentally rebuked. I didn't. We were wrestling for the gun and he must have accidentally pulled the trigger. He was right to attack me, though. And turn right over here, Melissa pointed. We were at the edge of town with houses to the right and forested terrain to the left. Hills rising tall. So what do we do? There's probably too many of them, I asked. There are more rebels inside the cult. They'll be at the ritual. All I gotta do is give them the sign and they'll unleash everything they got. That was our last plan in case everything else failed. What if there's not enough of them? Well, then we all die, she shrugged. We drove for another few minutes until the remaining houses disappeared and we reached a huge, fenced-off area to our left. Melissa told me to pull up near the entrance and from there, we got out of the car. The rickety gate was open despite the sign which said no trespassing. Far up ahead was a quarry stretching proudly at least a whole mile, and way down below was the entrance into the mines. Come on, we gotta hurry. Melissa said and proceeded down the makeshift staircase made from old, rotted planks, which went around the inside wall of the quarry. It took us a good five minutes to reach the bottom, and by the time that we did, I already felt like I needed another drink. And I suppressed my desire and followed Melissa inside the dark entrance, leaving all vestiges of light behind. Try to be quiet, she said in a whisper and pulled out a flashlight. She illuminated the path ahead and started walking. She seemed to know her way around the place, and then I figured she must have been here many times before. Is this the hideout? I said. Yeah, she simply said. It wasn't long until we had started to hear voices echoing in the distance. I couldn't discern what they were saying since they were too far away though. Melissa didn't seem phased by this as she didn't even stop. I drew my gun and as we went on, the voices got louder and louder. I still couldn't make out what they were saying and eventually, I realized the reason for that was the fact they weren't speaking English. It sounded like church chanting in a language unlike any that I had ever heard before. Probably dozens of people all chanting at the same time. Melissa raised her hand for me to stop once more so I complied. There was faint orange light gleaming from around the corner and it was evident that the voices were coming from right there. Melissa peeked carefully and then went back to me and said, Take a look. I carefully approached and slowly peeked. 
I saw a huge area with what looked like dozens of people dressed in red robes facing away from me. They all held lit candlesticks, staring up at an elevated area which had something that looked like an altar on the top. Alexandra was there, held firmly by two cultists by her arms, while Lydia faced the crowd, holding her arms up high with a knife in one of her hands. She was looking up and chanting something, as if in a trance and the entire group repeated after her. So now what? I asked, turning to Melissa. Go around over there, you'll be able to get behind and rescue Alexandra. I'll distract them. Wait, are you crazy? They'll kill you. Trust me on this, detective. She put her hand on my shoulder and nodded. I snuck all the way around to the other side and peeked around the corner. The altar was in front of me with Lydia facing away this time. I got my gun ready and I waited impatiently. The chanting permeated the mind, sung in such unison that the walls vibrated. Hey! A voice shouted and the chanting stopped. All the faces turned around to face Melissa, who stood there cool as a cucumber. What is the meaning of this recruit? Lydia asked. Zealots, bring her here. A few men started walking towards her, but she drew a gun and pointed it at them. They recoiled in fear to which Lydia got angrier. What are you waiting for, killer? Melissa shot a bullet into the air and the next few things that happened were so quick that they became a blur. I saw the majority of the group rush at Melissa. I saw a big number of the cultists take off their masks, drawing their guns and starting to shoot at the others. I saw Melissa shooting at the crowd which was approaching her but she was overwhelmed. I couldn't see what happened to her, but I used the moment to rush up to the altar. Before they even realized what was going on, I shot one of Alexandra's captors in the back of the head. The other one turned around and when he saw me, he took a few steps back ready to run. I shot him too because screw negotiating with brainwashed fanatics. Alexandra, come on! I gave her my hand and she immediately took it, albeit confused in the whole mess. We gotta run. Suddenly, the entire place had started shaking and I lost my balance. There was something that sounded like a deep, enormous groan resonating throughout the entire mines. An earthquake. The ceiling started to collapse, big chunks of rock falling down, crushing many of the cultists and undercover rebels. Detective, stop! Lydia shouted, staring at me. She had a look of worry and desperation on her face. You don't know what you're doing. The corruption has to be stopped. We have to sacrifice. Her words were cut off when a big piece of ceiling fell right on top of her head, leaving nothing more visible than her hand hanging out from under the boulder, red oozing out. I remember feeling relish, seeing Lydia's life snuffed out like that. Come on, I shouted at Alexandra and pulled her. Wait, she's right. We have to complete the ritual, Alexandra said. I couldn't believe what I was hearing to they brainwash her. If we don't, the entire town will die, she said. Forget the town, I rebutted and picked her up, despite her protest. I wasn't going to let her die here. She thrashed against me, but I ran. Melissa ran across our path on the way out. She was badly beaten, but still alive. She led us outside as the entire place continued to shaking more and more violently. The deep groan getting louder and louder sounding like some beast that we awoke from a long slumber. 
Many of the cultists were running in panic, while some were on their knees, seemingly praying, but mostly were already dead. We're almost there, come on, Melissa shouted. I was wheezing like an asthmatic by that point, barely able to keep up in my poor condition with a little girl slumped over my shoulder. I cursed for allowing myself to get in such bad shape. I saw the light of day and it gave me a renewed hope, so I ran even faster despite my lungs and legs burning. We were out, but we didn't stop for another 10 seconds or so. There was a loud crack and suddenly the ceiling collapsed, blocking the mine's exit. About a dozen people managed to escape, running for their lives in panic, both cultists and rebels alike. I couldn't be bothered chasing them. The final rumbles beneath the earth died down. People's screams abated and then everything went silent. I put Alexandra on the ground, panting for life. Alexandra, are you okay? Melissa asked the kid. She hugged her and stroked her hair to calm her down. I'm, I'm fine too, I said sarcastically between breathing, chuckling at my own joke. Melissa looked at me with compassion and said, Thank you, you saved your life. What about the order? I asked. Oh, they'll be back. The surviving members will reorganize the order to stop the corruption from spreading. Ah, screw me, I said. Hey, language, Melissa rebutted, looking at Alexandra signaling me not to swear around the kid. I stared at the mine entrance, processing what had just happened. As I stared, I saw traces of coal and tar strewn about the ground, stretching from the entrance like veins. The gust of air must have pushed some of it out from the mine, I thought. We got Alexandra back to her dad and I decided to stay in Northbury a little longer. The order had to be eliminated and I couldn't leave. A lot of the stragglers gave themselves up but I wouldn't stop until every last one of them was no longer a threat. It wasn't until one day about a month after rescuing Alexandra that I heard the news that the people living near the mines had to be evacuated. I asked Melissa what was going on and she threw some photographs on the desk in front of me. I flipped through them. There were photos of the mines and the houses that we saw on our way there, but something was wrong. The traces of coal that I saw on the ground at the mine after escaping were much more spread now. The entire quarry was completely black, covered in a tar-like substance and much of it creeped onto the road and even overtook some of the houses nearby, making them look like they were dipped in tar. The black substance ended in the middle of the street spreading at the edge just like it did in the quarry, like roots or veins, menacingly reaching out to devour the street. What is this? I asked. Melissa pursed her lips. The corruption, she said. I'm a long-haul truck driver. These are my stories from the road. Written by Lucas Worley. Trucking across America takes me to some of the absolute weirdest stops. Podunk stations and rest areas are easily the strangest. Give me the security of a metro area any day of the week. Bare minimum, the pay's good. I can't vouch for others in the business, but sometimes it just so happens that I'll blink tired and miss a sign on the freeway and drive ahead in the dark night, trying to figure out exactly what my GPS is trying to tell me. 
Rubbing my eyes, maybe I'll see a place just up ahead that is a space to park for a few hours. Maybe a bed in the rear of my cab is a godsend. No roach-infested rooms for me. I rolled out of South Dakota on the I-90 and passed Beaver Creek into Minnesota. Beyond that, I couldn't tell where I was when my eyes got all fuzzy. The GPS froze up trying to recalculate. Road people talk about the black dog. That little shadow thing that jumps in front of the engine when you get dog tired. Huh, is that where it comes from? But that night at least, he was nowhere to be seen. I glanced over to the pile of empty plastic one-shot energy bottles resting haphazardly on the passenger seat. They were supposed to keep me awake, but they had long lost their potency on me. Squinting ahead, watching the headlights cut the path, I rolled my window down to let the cool air in. Maybe that would help. Wind burst through the cabin and I rubbed my face. That's when I caught sight of a truck stop advertisement. It seemed like my best bet to catch a couple winks before I got back on the road. Maybe I could even get something to eat. I pulled up the ramp and took the bridge hanging over the freeway towards that dull-lit sign that called like heaven. I kicked out of the cab, stretching while tugging my waistband out from the places that it dug. It felt good. Standing in the big lot, I read the establishment sign. End of the road. It felt cold looking up at that sign leveled on two poles. I shivered and withdrew my jacket from the cab before slamming the door shut. The lot was nearly empty. The only vehicles besides mine was a pair of old cars parked around back that I assumed belonged to the employees working the owl shaft. As I crossed the asphalt, I caught a glimpse of a woman standing in the wide center window of the dining area, and then the blinds came down to hide her. A chill crawled down the back of my neck, so I threw up the collar of my jacket, blaming it on the night air. This is the part where I should have taken my dear old dead dad's wisdom, you would say. Bert, if it feels like a setup, it's a setup. Of course, he died in jail though. Pushing through the glass door, I was immediately met by the warmth and the smell of waffle batter cooking as the noise of a jukebox in the far corner played, cover of a rolling stone. Lining the kitchen's wall was a counter with red-high stools. I took the one nearest to the exit, peering in through the order window to see if I could see the cook. A waitress, a young woman with blue eyes, black curls, and a khaki brown uniform greeted me with a quick smile as she handed me one of these single-paged, laminated menus. Her name tag said, Betty. What can I get ya? I put the menu under my elbows. Bacon and eggs and some decaf. Can do. She moved to the coffee pot behind the counter and poured me a cup before moving to the kitchen. Holding the ceramic cup in my hands, I tapped my foot along to the old song coming from the jukebox. The place is pretty empty. I called through the open hole beyond the counter. She poked her head in through the rectangle opening, shooting me another smile before scanning the main room. Is it? She said. I glanced over my shoulder. All the booths were empty and all the tables too. What could she have possibly meant? Not knowing how to respond, I took a sip. She giggled and ducked out of view. 
Examining the memorabilia hanging on the walls, I was immediately struck by how out of place things felt. On the wall by the jukebox was a poster promoting Reagan's 1980 campaign, still as pristine as ever. Then there was, right by the door that I had entered, a blocky cigarette vending machine. I blinked. The kitchen door swung open, forcing a jump out of me, and Betty delicately placed the white plate on the counter while I wasn't looking. I pointed to the cigarette machine. Those things are illegal, aren't they? My eyes stayed glued to the object. She shot me a funny look. I swallowed hard and shifted around so as to not look at the vending machine. And then a sick fist twisted my entrails around and my fingers gripped the counter. I wanted to scream but it wouldn't come out. I stared down at the plate, catching the four bacon slices in a floaty, oozy, orange pool, a pile of veiny chicken embryos. Betty rounded the corner. Are you alright? I pushed the plate away. There's something wrong with these eggs. She examined the plate. What? What's the matter with them? Was she messing with me? Those are fertilized. She lifted my fork, prodding one of the embryos with a corner prong. Blood sprang and collected in the edges of the plate. God, no, don't do that. I swatted her hand away as the fork fell onto the floor with a sharp metallic clatter. She squinted and then pursed her lips. Sir, don't touch me like that. Uh, sorry. I glanced to the mess on the plate and tore a napkin from a nearby dispenser to cover it. What's wrong with those eggs? She took a step away from me. There's nothing wrong with them, sir. What do you mean? Did you not see that blood? Her eyes darted around the diner, flustered, cheeks red. You're starting to make the other customers uncomfortable. Please. A chill swept clear through my jacket till I couldn't feel my fingers or toes. Then heat washed down my body. I spun on the stool, looking around in all directions. What are you talking about? There's nobody else here. She leaned in very close, too close, and whispered, Is there someone that I need to call for you? Are you? She tapped the side of her temple with an index finger. All there? This enraged me, but still there was that lingering feeling that I wasn't seeing all to be seen. I shouted, I'm not crazy, lady. A thud came from the kitchen, followed by rattling chains. I gripped the countertop again and white-knuckled. Betty shook her head, throwing up her hands. Oh, now you've done it. You've woken a mob. What? You heard me. As she moved to the kitchen to push the door in, she stopped midway through the threshold. I could hear the rattling of the chains clearer thumping and breathing and scraping nails. I'll have your bill just as soon as I put him back to sleep. Removing my hands from the counter, I saw that I had left behind nail marks. My hands shook as I withdrew my wallet. Fumbling with my debit card, I waited and listened. Suddenly, I was struck with the idea that I might die there if I weren't to leave immediately. Betty from somewhere in the rear of the kitchen spoke. No, no, you can't see the gas. Shh, shh. If you don't go back to sleep, I'll cut you. I pulled my jacket tighter around as she returned. 
Not a noise came from the kitchen. The dizzying effects of surrealism were in full force. Walder, fancy pants. She out of my debit card. We don't accept these. I throw 20 on the counter and snap the card from her hand. All right, I'll be going then. What about your change? She popped the bill straight while holding it up to the overhead light. Hold on. Heart pounding onto my chest, I spun around with my arm still holding the glass door open. Yes? What is this, some joke money? What do you mean? It's fake. Says that it was printed in 2013. I shrugged. More than anything, I just wanted to get out of that place. I was certain that I would die. It's all I got. She rolled her eyes. Fine, just go then and don't come back. I don't intend to. I ran as fast as I could to my rig, swung out the door and I dove in, scrambling to slam it shut again. Sitting in the driver's seat, I chewed my tongue. That was not normal. Something told me that if I spent a moment longer in that place, something terrible was going to happen to me. Intuition, or my dad's words maybe. If it feels like a setup, it's a setup. I double and triple checked to make sure the doors of the cab were locked and I tried bedding down and back. But try as I might, I could not shake the feeling that I heard the distinct tapping of footsteps outside. And then of course, I would peer out the windows, but all that was there to greet me was long still shadows. There, across the lot, sat the diner with its warm yellow glow, seeping out through blinds onto the asphalt. My mind raced all night as I tried closing my eyes in bed. As tired as I had been coming to the place, my adrenaline wouldn't afford rest. The cabin felt muggy, wrong. I waited and waited and waited until a gentle sunlight spilled in and I gave up on sleep. Moving to the driver's seat, I cranked the engine alive. And that's when I noticed it. The truck stop sign was no longer lit up. In fact, there was no sign whatsoever, and the windows of the old place were covered in plywood board, and tiles dangled like tongues from its ancient roof on loose nails. I pulled out fast and hit the freeway, knowing only that I needed to go east and away from there. It comes as no surprise to me that the open road has tricks aplenty harbored around every dark corner of America. Many of the guys that have been trekking far longer than me tell some of the wildest stories. Tales of the black dog come to life, or even psychos trying to run drivers off the road in desolate, otherwise quiet stretches. Then there is one of the things that truckers are known for even if we don't like it. Well, that would be lot lizards. Women and men of the night that hang around truck stops, hoping to shack up with the driver. Although their reputation is skewed toward unscrupulous, due to some of them being addicts, the majority of the ones that I've met have been relatively nice. People just trying to make their way in this crazy world. For every outrageous story you hear about a toothless granny busting somebody's windows with a tire iron, there are at least two dozen or more of them who are scared and penniless and far from home. I ran into an outlier among them. On my way down I-25 southbound through Colorado, I saw the sign for a Love's gas station near Berthoud and decided it would be a good to stretch my legs one last time before the home stretch to Santa Fe. 
With still a few hours of sunlight left, I could refuel, catch an early dinner and maybe a shower before I kept on keeping on. The parking lot was slam-packed with cars and trucks alike. I couldn't wait to fill my growling stomach, even if it was with some BS like hamburger steak. I moseyed up to the door after topping the tank with my cart at the pump. With my spare clothes slung over a shoulder, I pushed in through the door and was greeted by stock rock music coming from the overhead speakers as the man behind the counter nodded to me. After showering, I returned to the general store area and could see through the glass divider that their restaurant was full. I opted to buy a handful of jerky and chips and energy drinks instead. Once I had brought my items to the counter, the clerk rang it up, beeping each one slowly, robotically. Reaching for my wallet, I asked, What's the damage? Dead-eyed, he shifted his gaze from the register to me, then pushed his Bronco's cap back to expose his furrowed brow. Why are you always on the road? Huh? Why are you always on the road? We hate it when you're gone. We hate it and we miss you. Goosebumps sprang across my arms and my stomach fell into my feet. I'm sorry, Chief. Have we met? The clerk blinked a few times, shaking his head. His eyes returned to the register. Uh, that'll be 2568. What did you say? I could feel my knees going weak as I stood there at the counter. I glanced over my shoulder to make sure that no one else was standing behind me and then looked back to the clerk. What did you say? He gave me a meager, confused smile. That'll be $25.68. No, what did you say to me before? I'm sorry, I'm confused. Maybe I was tired. Yeah, that must have been the culprit. I was starting to hear things that weren't there. The thought of taking a vacation came to mind. Lord knows it had been too long since I had had a nice long vacation. Perhaps I could take a cruise south of the border ease my mind, drink tequila, and forget. I paid him and I left. As I walked across the parking lot towards my rig, I had already torn into one of the bags of salt and vinegar chips, shoveling a fist of them into my mouth. Probably more than anything else, my sedentary lifestyle combined with the fact that I ate garbage was beginning to fatigue me. And that's when I saw her, Blonde hair, black cowboy hat, blue jean bell-bottoms. I stopped mid-step, potato chips crumbling out of my frozen hand. The audacity of this woman struck me first. There she was, leaning against the right headlight of my rig. Her eyes cut through me. How was it that she looked exactly like somebody I already knew? She might as well have been a doppelganger. But upon examining her face... I noticed that she had a disgusting brown birthmark the size of a nickel on her otherwise milk-white chin. Stunning. Hey there, she said. Her lips shot me a kiss. The plastic bag full of snacks and drinks that I was carrying had torn straight through and I watched as a Red Bull bounced under the front tire of the rig. She laughed at me as I went chasing after them. You've got a bed in this thing, don't you? Scooping as many of the things that had fallen as I could against my chest, I tried ignoring her. What's the matter, cowboy? She asked. Not interested, I said. Interested in what exactly? 
I don't like paying for it. I know what you're here for and I don't have an issue with your line of work, but I personally don't involve myself with it. She laughed. Oh, what's that supposed to mean? What exactly do you think my line of work is? You're paid to win. She pulled her expression into one of mock offense. Oh, don't be that way. And then her hands came up in flat palms and one of her pointed boots kicked off the front of my rig, leaving behind a dark streak. All right, you caught me. She rubbed her arms. It sure is cold out here, though. Do you think that I could warm up in your truck for a few minutes at least? I frowned. Why don't you just go up to the store? They don't like me in there. Sighing, I pointed a finger at her. All right, but only for a couple of minutes. I need to go on soon. Maybe it was because she was pretty. Maybe it was because her face was so familiar. I'm uncertain why I cracked open the door and let her crawl inside. I stared down at my bag of open chips, eating one at a time. Where are you headed? South. What for? Stuff. What's your name? Bert. That's interesting. My name's Alex and it's nice to meet you, Bert. Is that short for something else? Bertrand. You are probably the world's worst conversationalist. I'm not an animal, you know. Setting the chips to the side, I nodded. Yeah, I know you're not. I'm sorry. That's better. Now, why don't you tell me why you look at me like that? Like what? Like you've seen me before. Uh, I started. You remind me of someone. Who? My ex. Oh, that's rough. I'm sorry. What made you get into the business? I asked, hoping to change the subject. Well, that's not something I'm asked very often. Her deep brown eyes looked off through the windshield. It's nothing tragic if that's what you think. That's what everybody thinks. I guess so. It's just a way of doing something till I die. Same reason you drive this truck. Same reason scientists watch the stars. Passing the time. Never thought that I would meet a philosophical hooker. Hey, don't call me that. Sorry. The cabin grew quiet and still as her left hand played with one of the holes in her blue jeans where the threads had come away in stringy clumps. She rolled them back and forth between her forefinger and thumb. Oh, why are you always on the road? Well, I tried thinking of a way to explain it. A way to reinforce all the reasons. We get really sad when you're gone. And you're always gone for so long. I blinked and her eyes became tethered. Hers milky, unclear. I sat there with my hands in my lap for an eternity, looking at the woman and nothing else. The world beyond disappeared. A sneaky paranoia coiled around me and squeezed. My fingers latched onto the steering wheel, running the circumference of it nervously. What? What did you say to me? You're always gone and it hurts and it hurts to see you gone so long. And you're always tired. Why do you do it? Why do you hate us? Do you not miss your family? Please come back and visit. Please, it hurts. The woman reached out with clawed hands and I put up my own to defend myself. She screamed and grunted and grabbed a hold of my throat, pushing my head against the driver's window. 
fear welling up in my stomach, I tried to speak but nothing came out. In those moments, I was sure that this woman was going to stick me with a blade and then rob me. Her icy cold fingers dug into my throat, pushing deeper into the soft tissue beneath my jaw, until I heard a pop and a sensation of my own warm blood rolled on my chest. I was gurgling and gasping for breath. Her nose was the first to go. Like hot candle wax, her face drooled off her head and dripped onto mine. I blinked sporadically through the melting face as my eyes gunked, and then I was screaming or perhaps it was a death rattle. In a blink, I was completely alone in the cabin. My scream filled the space as I flailed my arms madly around. It was fully dark outside. Only the love sign illuminated the gray parking lot. God, I wiped my eyes and flipped the sun visor down to investigate my neck. No bruising, no blood, and nothing. Through heart-pounding seconds, I was sure that I had lost my mind. But as I cranked the engine on, I looked over to the passenger seat. There sat a black cowboy hat. I tossed it out the window once I hit the interstate, and watched it cyclone around the edge of the trailer in the rear view. Home was just up the way while Don came to meet my wandering mind. Driving for long distances gives you a lot to think about. I wonder about the reasons for life and the whys behind people's actions. But mostly I have thought so inconsequential and difficult that they could hardly be summed up here in words. I dropped my load off in Santa Fe and made my way over to Villanueva, a small community in the heart of New Mexico. Everything on the back roads was quiet as I took the dirt out to where my house stood among dusty hills and sagebrush. This was the place that my ex had wanted. When we were looking to buy a house, I wanted something closer to Albuquerque, but she insisted the price was better and she liked the outdoors. Well, there was plenty of that. Finally, I parked the rig with the engine still running and stared at the dark house with its blue paneling. There had once been a reason for me to get excited about it, but that seemed like a lifetime ago. She never could get over it. As I watched, the black windows caught in the headlights. The CB came alive with static. I froze and watched the black box. Words came through the speakers in sporadic sputters. You don't want to go in, do you? You wish you could turn around and drive off. You don't want to check the mail and see the letters that you've gotten since last you were here. What's the matter with you? Don't you want to be a functioning person? The CB sat quiet and all that could be heard beyond the windows of the cab was the echoing howl of a coyote. Even with AC on the cab, it was warm. I lifted the CB. Who is this? Who's using the channel? A cackle escaped the box, filling me with a sense of impending doom. Dad, don't you recognize my voice? The receiver fell from my hand, stretching the curly cord long. I know you weren't around much, but you would think that you would recognize your son's voice. I rubbed my cheeks. It wasn't happening. It was no more than a manifestation of grief or a sick joke. What are you running from, Dad? Don't you miss? I shut the CB off and pushed open the door to hop out. With the sun cresting the horizon and the overgrowth around my house, 
I felt cast from any civilized place. A part of me thought perhaps that it had been my ex's plan all along. She would get me out into the middle of the country and slowly drive me crazy. That's cruel and only half true of me to say. I understand that she had her reasons. Believe me, she was a person that refused to take a back seat, and I should have seen that in the beginning. I had the wrong idea about getting married. Seeing that the mailbox screwed to the side of the house was flipped partway open with white envelopes protruding out, I chewed my tongue. But ultimately, I tore them from the box to carry inside. The screen door was unlatched and I pushed in through the solid metal door into the cold house. Looking over the envelopes, I saw that she had sent the papers again. I wouldn't sign them. Not because I didn't want to set her free, but I think because I couldn't set myself free. Stupid. After rummaging through the empty fridge, I opted to find a pack of ramen in the cabinet. Once I had cobbled together a jailhouse burrito, I tossed the mail in the trash and I tried watching something on the TV. My eyes didn't stay open for long and before I knew it, I was dreaming. The images came watery and the sounds echoing. She stood in the living room pointing a finger at me, telling me that I hardly knew our son, telling me that I should have been around more. I tried telling her that everything would be better once I quit and sold the rig. We could be a happy, proper family once I had done that. But that never happened. And my son got a bad fever while I was on the road. I tried rushing back, but his body was cold when I finally showed up. The last thing that I remember before I snapped awake was his grave in Villanueva Cemetery. I would go there sometimes after, but she never could. Dark, cold sweating and sore from sleeping in an awkward position on the couch, I tried putting the dream out of my mind. There was no reason to dwell on the past, only the future. Midday light splashed into the house as I went to the window near the TV to swipe open the curtains. It splintered through the glass, forcing me to squint and making me wish that I could live in a world devoid of it. And then there was a knock on the door. I answered it to expose the sharp-dressed gentleman standing on my porch. He removed the spectacles from his face and polished them against a handkerchief. Ah, hello, he said, before returning the glasses across his sharp hooked nose. It's good to see that you're home. I have something of a proposition for you, if you would be so inclined. I would like to hire somebody with your set of skills to take some cargo up to Maine. Word is is that you own a truck, yes? My mind went to the message that I had received in the CB. Was there any connection, or had I lost my marbles completely? Who the heck are you? Looking past his shoulder, I could see that there was a woman standing out near a black town car in my driveway, parked behind the rig. Sunglasses and a sun hat disallowed me from making out any defining characteristics of her. Of course, I'm a businessman of sorts, looking to expand to more lucrative ventures. His voice was absent, feeling scripted. There was something in the way that he carried himself that made my skin crawl. My mind immediately went back to the adage that my dad had told me. If it feels like a setup, it's a setup. I get lost. I went to close the door, 
Hold on. His foot shot into the threshold to keep me from shutting him out. I think I've got something that might change your mind. The man produced a rectangle of paper from his jacket pocket and slipped it to me. Holding it up, I saw that it was a check. Scrawled across the amount line was more than I made in two years of freelance work. Is this some kind of joke? The man raised an eyebrow. Is it not sufficient? Uh, I like to take care of my people. You want me to deliver something to Maine? I asked. He nodded. Well, that's right, yes. I understand that you're a timely driver and you live near the pickup location. And more important than anything else, you know there's more in this world than what others are willing to admit. I think you're a prime candidate. Who are you? Without me even realizing it, I gently let the door sway open a few inches. Henry. He put out his hand for a shake and I took it. Totally hypnotized by his abnormal demeanor. Barely registering how cold his skinny long fingers were. But seeing as you're going to be on my payroll, I would like it very much if you would call me Mr. Calgary. I am preferential to hierarchies and where people belong in them. I hope you understand. Okay. The check felt heavy. He clapped his hands together and grinned. It's so nice to meet you at last, Bertrand. So, it was that that I found myself on my way to pick up a shipment in Santa Rosa. The GPS worked well enough to get me in the vicinity of the pickup. But beyond that, I was forced to read over the scratchy directions that Calgary had given me. It was early morning as I pulled up to the warehouse buildings bordered by high fencing and barbed wire. At the booth, a guardian a mechanical arm was a man. I could see that he was an older gentleman with a cigarette hanging loosely from his lips as he rounded at the front of my rig, looked at my plate and then pointed me in. In the empty, concrete square, it took no time at all to spot Calgary waving me down from the corner of a long tubular metal building. Pulling the rig around, I caught sight of a single trailer and rolled my window down. Is that the one? Do you see any others? he asked. Rolling the window up again, I muttered to myself, All right, tough guy. Once I had lined myself up with the trailer, I hopped from the cab and walked over to Calgary, standing alongside the trailer. What am I moving? I said. Don't worry about that, there's no reason for it. It will do no good to speculate over things that don't concern you. I bit my tongue. My dad's words rang in my mind again. Something was wrong with this, but the money was the only thing keeping me on the line. You'll be taking this. He tapped the side of the metal container with his knuckles. Up to Bar Harbor. Have you ever had the pleasure of visiting New England? Nope. Oh, that's a shame. Looking over his watch, he went on. Well, it's about time for you to hit the road, Jack. That's the sort of lingo that you fellows use, isn't it? Sure. All right, then I will see you in Bar Harbor when you arrive. He handed me a slip of paper and meet me at this address. If it feels like a setup, then it's a setup. Taking the I-40 East, I tried calming my nerves with the radio, but it could not be helped. I was too stuck in my own head to do anything about it. When I had asked if I could take a look in the trailer, he told me plainly no. There was a lock on the door, and if I were to guess, I would say he probably carried the only key. 
Crossing over the Texas panhandle was something that I hadn't done in years. As I caught the big A skyline, worried whispers crept up in the back of my neck into my ear, making me question if I would ever be further west than that ever again. I was being silly. The thought of that vacation came back, surely with the money that I would get from this haul, I would be able to take a nice long one. A voice came over the CB just as I was passing by Shamrock and my heart froze. For the briefest of moments, I thought the voice was going to hand over some earth-shattering absolutes, but it was just a fellow highwayman. A whole mess of full-grown bears blew my doors off headed west down I-40 past Beninine. I believe it's at 1042 just up the way. Anyone headed east expect a brake check. They had a meat wagon in tow. I lifted the receiver. 10-4, good buddy. As prophesied, the traffic came to a halt. Hoping to catch 169 before the crash site, I hung in the right lane. Minutes went by with the cars ahead inching. That's when it started to rain. Catching sight of the stadies clumped out there near that three-car pileup, I did not envy them with their bright yellow ponchos in the downpour. There in the median was a sheet covering mounds. I knew what that meant. I looked ahead, twisting the radio loud and blotting out the rain with John Prine's voice. Just as it had slowed, it picked up again. The rain came down hard as the sky lit and then belted in protest. I felt a tickly and slither up my right ear but thought that it was only death in the air that had spooked me. I rubbed the dangly flesh there between fingers to scratch the edge. And then it came again and in the dim reflection of the windshield... I caught sight of a man standing behind my chair, towering over me. Initially, his eyes rolled around confused, but I stayed frozen to the steering wheel, not taking my eyes off the road. That man was dead. Lodged into his right cheek was a smattering of broken glass while his left eye hung clear off his face from an optic nerve. Hanging from around his purple swollen throat was a seatbelt. More than anything, I wanted to scream. I wanted to slam on the brakes. He reached out to touch my ear again, but this time I tried my best to pay him no mind. An icy rod shot through my whole body as I watched his hand pass through my head. Looking at his scraped palms, he started bellowing out words that I couldn't quite make out. I pulled my jacket around me, and then he tried talking to me and he came in garbled whispers as the road ahead turned into a blur of lines and mile markers. You'll meet an end too. It's a setup. Tommy says hi. Seeing my bottom lip tremble in the reflection forced me to bite it shut. Night drew on and the man could no longer be seen in the windshield, but I refused to stop and regain control of my anxious breath. Shaking, I put it out of my mind as far as it would go. The black night through Oklahoma fared no better. As I drove on and the cars thinned out, I could see him standing by the side of each mile marker, mouth moving in words and never to be heard. Time became infinitesimal, incalculable, no coherency could be managed on that foreboding interstate as the headlights blared and I ceased to exist as a full person understanding the world. There was only the steering wheel in front of me as I urged the rig to take me on. I wished that I were done with the task and in Maine already, 
but I had so many hours to go. There would be no sleep until I died, of that much I was certain. In actuality, I would have probably been fine if I had pulled off somewhere to recharge. So many odd happenings came to pass that I no longer wanted to stop. In my deprived mind, I could only think of pushing on, and so I did. Blinking slow through throbs of sleep, I found myself slipping. The mile markers and no haunting man in sight whizzed by, and the signs scrambled to indecipherable gibberish against the backdrop of a starless horizon. Still, the freeway was wide and safe and among others. And trying to give my mind something to do, I began singing along to the CD that I had playing. Dear Abby, dear Abby, my feet are too long. But this proved to be no better than my jaw remaining motionless. I shut the radio off and then came a great big yawn that forced me to squint through kaleidoscopic tears. By the time that it passed, I was confronted with something that woke me up so completely that I straightened myself in the chair and gripped the steering wheel with wide confusion. The road ahead was no longer the interstate, but a narrow, crooked road with foreign trees clawing at the trailer. Angled crooked fingers forcing a twist in my stomach. Swallowing hard, my eyes darted to the fuel gauge. Plenty left, but no idea where I was. The GPS map spun in erratic jerks recalculating. I shut the useless thing off. Rationalizing away my superstition, I came up with any number of reasons that I might be on what had to be a back road. But each one dissipated with the thump of my front right tire hitting a pothole. The sound of crickets among the trees, as rocks kicked underneath the cab, reminded me how alone I was. The road, never-ending as it was, snaked through deep forest. Only one thought sprang to mind. This was how I died. The setup had finally caught up to me. Within that hushed insanity, I hoped and prayed that light would find me just around the next bend, but it never did. Instead, when I did see light next, it came from the rear view in the form of a pair of high beams from a pickup truck. Breathing a sigh of relief, I watched as the lights behind gained speed. I wasn't so alone after all. And then the sound of metal on metal came and alienation rocked back to me. The truck crashed into me, swaying the trailer. My tires slid as I fought to regain control and stay on the road. What the heck are they doing? I kept them in view as well as I could through the rear view. The CB choked alive, stopping my heart short of beating. We guard the roads and have found you a hazard. I jerked the receiver to my mouth, certain that the person on the other end of the line was the one trying to run me off the road. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Another slam at my back end. Come on, I screamed. Will you or will you miss it? A tire dipped off the road and I almost overcorrected the thrum of the engine, the lights, the snaking darkness ahead, and the trees combined to make a perfect tunnel vision of hell. Back off. And then an idea sprang to mind. I eased the brakes. Another slam came and I felt the trailer shift. It was not long until I was nearing a full stop. As they did too, a new thought came. What if they were trying to board the rig? What was I to do then?
I twisted the engine off, yanked the keys from the ignition, and locked the doors before diving towards the rear of the cab where personal effects were scattered across the bed. I scanned the vicinity for something big, something that I could whack somebody with. I should have invested in that gun that I thought about years prior. Pivoting to face the front of the cabin from what I hoped was the relative safety of the darkness, I squeezed the keys between my fingers. It was hardly a weapon, but I would use them if I needed to. I watched through the small window at the head of the bed. Black shadows moved across it. In a single file line, they marched by in an approximate silhouettes. Cold swept through the cab. Even without appropriate light, I could see my own breath mist in front of my face. Something was very wrong. They weren't making any noise. I craned forward to catch a glimpse of them standing in front of the engine. There they were, too many to have piled into that pickup truck. No way. Shrouded in shadow, they circled the front of the rig, interlocking arms like they were cut from black paper and strung across that way. Teeth clenched, I waited. Could they see me? Should I have run off into those trees? A whisper rose in the air. At first, I was certain that it came from the CB, but it didn't. It was as though the speaker was standing directly next to me. We watch you and those like you. We are the guardians of the road. Such transgressions cannot be overlooked. You must be punished. My blood ran cold. What the heck does that mean? Speaking to the disembodied voice was peculiar and I waited for a response as the cabin fell quiet once more, all the while feeling like a ginormous idiot. The shrouded figures merely stood outside. I relaxed my fist of keys and jumped into the seat, cranking the rig on. Headlights splashed across their disfigured and inhuman faces. My heart sank into the chair and I was frozen in equal measures of dismay, sadness, and horror. Twisted curiosities and without clothes. There they stood, arms together, blocking my path. I honked the horn once and then pushed the gas with a quick tap, lurching forward. Come on, come on, move. They stood stalwart in their demeanor without flinching or acknowledging the rig's front bumper. I pushed on, surely they would move. They did not. I watched as they disappeared beneath the edge of the hood and I could feel the slightest of rocks as I went over them. Move, man, I screamed. Why didn't you move? Hot tears rolled down my face. I blinked. There I was on the interstate again. White knuckles stood out like mountains in front of me. I shook all over. It was normal. I was fine. I pulled off on the next exit and parked quickly at a stop. Resting my head on the wheel, I felt sick, woozy. Fresh air might help, I thought. I removed myself from the cab and put my hands over my head to better breathe. There, just around the left wheel, I caught sight of a red smear. In a panic, I ran to the rear of the trailer and there along the corners and edges were noticeable dents. After washing the blood, I took to dreaming that was hardly that at all. Somewhere between Bourbon and Sullivan in Missouri is where the wild things are. To keep my eyes open, I started on caffeine tablets, thinking that they would keep my tired mind sharp was ridiculous. But the images in my dreams were far from my control and I didn't want to sleep. 
Instead, the world went in a haze of wild colors and motions and sounds. There came a time where muscle memory alone was the only thing tending the wheel. That scares me. Things would never be normal again. If there are souls tethered between here and the next place, I resided among them in that fever dream. Catching my reflection forced to frown. Who was that man with the bruises beneath his eyes? Why hadn't he shaved? Surely that man was not me. More than once I thought of ditching the trailer in the next town somewhere and heading home. That would have been the best. I could dust my hands of the whole affair and disappear. It was the only viable option. But it wasn't like I would have anyone to go back to. I would just be as lonely there as I would be out on the road. So, what did it even matter? Time meant nothing as it seemed that gray clouds followed me, blotting out the bright blue sky and making it so that I lived in a world of hurt. A world where I never could tell if it was daytime or night. It all felt black. Unbodied voices incessantly whispered through the CB whether it was on or not, and shadow people spilled from every corner. I rolled by a minivan full of children in soccer uniforms and upon waving at their smiling faces and giving them a hug, I saw that the person driving the van was blacked out. Just the fuzziest outline of what should have been a human. But that shape had eyes that made me uncomfortable. Bulbous, white, and veiny red. It felt like I was finally seeing the world for what it was. The reality beneath the surface of what we understand. There I was, riding metal into dark space, into the edges of understanding. The hitchhiker sat in the passenger seat with his feet on the dash. Oh, please don't do that. I begged without making eye contact. I did not like looking at him because there was certainly no way that he was real. He tugged the seatbelt wrapped around his throat as though it was a tightly lapped scarf. Does it look like I'm worried about safety regulations? My shoulders slumped as my fingers dangled off the wheel. Why are you here? You're all by yourself. Well, that's the way I like it. Seems like it's been working out for you, huh? He said. I cut my eyes to him as he idly pulled a piece of broken glass from his cheek, and black sludge oozed off his jaw, staining the floor. I felt sick. Please go away. Nah. Why are you here? Do you know what cortisol is? No. He shook his head. It's a hormone. Your cortisol's freaking whack. Only the hum of the engine could be heard as the yellow lines darted beneath the hood. Do you have any idea what you're doing? Not a clue. I blinked each eye individually. I don't feel very well. Any idea what you're moving? The hitchhiker thumbed back towards the trailer. I shook my head. Idiot. I felt movement from the trailer. I could hear it in my soul in the recesses of my reptile brain, vibrating the minuscule hairs on my ears. The hitchhiker laughed. You noticed that, huh? He squinted, nodded, and dissipated into mist and then nothing at all. And I was alone, but not quite by myself. I felt the trailer rock gently once more through whatever divine means and saw a long black limb that could have been mistaken for a tree branch creep from the top of the windshield. 
It came down in a wavering motion before it was joined by another. My heart shot into my throat like a carnival strength game. They were spider legs. Massive spider legs. The points crept towards the edges of the hood. In stunning detail, the mandibles of the creatures exhausted the air for me until I was certain that I was in space. Somewhere else. Such a ridiculous reaction it was, but I turned on the wipers and I sprayed. The spider hardly noticed. With my eyes peering through the spaces between its legs, I tried keeping my eyes on the road. Somehow I managed. The next exit found me throttling through it and I slammed on the brakes as I came to my first stop sign. Still the things maintained its grasp on the rig. I pulled into the nearest station and the massive spider stretched its legs. Without thought, only the need to get away from it. I pushed the driver's door open and I slung myself out, running from the cab. Bolting across the parking lot, passers-by shot me strange looks but I paid them no mind. As I reached the station's door, I wagered a glance over my shoulder. Nothing was on my rig, nothing at all. I had lost my mind, of course. Heart still beating, I crossed the parking lot toward my rig. Fists clenched, teeth grinding. After rounding the front of the engine several times, examining my surroundings in a thousand crusty blinks, I took a deep breath. And that's when I saw the spider legs again. They came from the sky and reached down to consume my vision, and then it dawned on me. The spider had not been a giant creature. It was on my face. I screamed and swatted at my brow. The spider, roughly the size of my hand, smacked the ground on its back. I slammed a foot on it and hunkered down while putting my face in my hands. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with everything. I had been too tired to feel it on my face and my delusional mind wasn't seeing things right. Hey there, cowboy. I looked up to see a man, well, mostly a man, standing over me with his hands on his hips. He wore a badge, but his face was like that of the driver I had seen in the minivan. He looked like he had been cut from deep black absence. Officer, I nodded at him. Y'all right. His lidless eyes ran along his face like fried eggs, drooping where his mouth should have been. I'm fine. I tried averting my gaze to the ground as I stood. Tired? He asked. Sure. Yeah, my daddy was a trucker. I get how it is, but you should get some sleep. You were swerving back there. I nearly pulled you over. But figured I'd give you a warning. Get some sleep, cowboy. His bulging eyeball rolled clean off his face and slapped the ground. I shivered and took in a great deal of air while looking at it and restraining my gag reflex. Will do, sir. He turned to walk away but stopped and pivoted to look back at me before going back to his car. You know, spiders lay eggs. Why would you say that to me? Have a good sleep, cowboy. He tipped his head and left me standing there in awe. I don't know what to think anymore. I think I'm done with this. I don't want to go any further and I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll just shut my eyes like the officer said and slowly drift off into the void. My old high school was closed when I turned 21. Last week I found out why. 
Written by Spectral42. My name is Caleb and last week I made a huge mistake. The year that I turned 21 my high school closed and nobody ever talked about it. I assumed it was closed because it was old. It had been up since 1802 and although it received some renovations over the years it never got updated the way that we all thought it should have. I graduated at 18 and spent three years at home. My time spent at home was normally spent taking care of my parents. Both of them had health issues. When I wasn't home with them, I was spending my time working at Jack's Auto Shop down the street. My mom and dad died that third year and I left. I couldn't stand to live in the house and although I didn't have the heart to sell the house so, I just decided to leave and not look back. My plan always was to come back once I had had a clear head. I was away from home for four years. A couple of months ago, I decided that I should return to my childhood home. Rent was rising in my area and I was starting to grow tired of the hustle of living in the big city. What pushed me to leave was the headaches that I had been having. For a while, they were under control, but as time went on, they only got far worse. Seeing the Welcome to Greenridge sign, it felt like a wave of relief was washing over me. Something about being in a familiar place made me feel relaxed. Despite having not been here in years, everything was coming back to me in waves. I knew where the nearest grocery store was, all of the important stores and even the theater. I was shocked that the theater was still up and operational. As I drove down the street, I decided to go check out my old stomping grounds. I drove past the middle school and can tell that it had been freshly renovated. The once brick building was replaced by a white building with large windows. I wasn't surprised to see that the football field was renovated as well. The biggest surprise was seeing the new hockey rink on the grounds. Hockey was always popular here and I was happy that the kids would have access to the sport in a comfortable environment. My next stop was the high school. Since it was Monday, I figured they would already be done with classes because I was arriving around 4pm. When I finally reached the building, I was shocked to see the windows shuttered and the grass overgrown. It looked like no one had been here in years. I heard rumors a while back about the school closing for renovations the same year that I had turned 21, but there was no other building here. I thought they might have put it somewhere else, but I wondered why they would keep the building up if nobody was using it. As I moved my car forward to turn around, I noticed a man standing in the grass tending to the weeds. It took me a minute, but I finally got my car over enough to speak with him. Excuse me, I called the man. Yeah? He called back without looking up. His clothes were tattered and worn down, covered in dirt and grime. I could recognize that he was wearing the custodian's uniform from the high school. It even had the gecko on the back. What happened here? I used to go here years ago. Did they build a new building or what? I asked him as I leaned out of the driver's side window. I come back tomorrow and I'll tell you the story. The man said oddly before walking away. I laughed a little. 
and I told him that I would be back and decided to take a shortcut back home. There were no other cars behind me and none near my house. Cutting through the high school was the fastest way to reach my street. As I drove down the street, I looked at each one of my neighbor's houses. Everything looked old and each one had a for sale sign in the yard. Something must have happened. I remembered this street being lively and active. I pulled my car into my house, took the keys and opened the door. Everything was just as I had left it. Waves of sadness washed over my body. I remembered walking into the living room to find my dad watching TV and reading the paper. My mom would be baking something and would even meet in the living room to show me what she bought while I was out. Running my hand through my hair, I walked right over to the couch and sat down. I sneezed because of the dust and let my current situation set in. After thinking about my life for a while, I got up to start cleaning the house up. It wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be, so I focused on the living room to start. The rest would have to come later. I ordered a pizza for dinner and I set up my laptop to watch some TV. The last thing on my mind was school, especially since I was finally able to get comfortable in my parents' house. As I sunk into the couch and looked out the window, it dawned on me how quiet the street was. No cars came down the road. The only sound was coming from my laptop. I sighed and I turned off my show. Before going to bed, I decided to do some research on the high school. I couldn't find anything though. There was nothing about it anywhere online. I thought that I was losing my mind. I looked for why the school had closed. I searched for the name of my street, and for both of those things, I couldn't get any answers. I had started to get annoyed, so I closed the laptop and I went to bed on the couch. When I woke up on Tuesday, I had a splitting headache. It felt like the weight of the world was resting on my face. The pressure was too much to ignore. I got up and I hobbled to the bathroom to see if there was any medicine left over, though it would probably be expired by now. As I got to the bathroom, the pressure began to lift from my head. It's hard for me to explain it, but it felt like I had to leave the house, almost like I was compelled to go. I took a quick shower, brushed my teeth, got dressed, and left the house right after I figured I would stop for a breakfast or something. I just had to get out of the house. When I got outside, I triple-checked everything and made sure the door was locked before getting in my car. My hands were trembling. I took a sharp left to go to the closest store. I wanted to grab a coffee and something to eat. As soon as I had turned down the street, the pain in the back of my head came. This time, though, it felt much worse. I had to slam on the brakes and luckily nobody was behind me. I turned my head back and backed the car up just enough to turn around and start heading back to my house. The closer to the house that I got, the more the pain increased. At this point, I could hardly see the road. I kept driving until I hit the turn that led to the high school. I could get to the clinic faster by cutting through. The pain in my head began to lift again as I approached the high school. Once I pulled my car over to the curb, the pain was gone completely. You came back. A familiar voice called to me. 
The man was here already, tending to the same spot in the grass that he was looking after when I came yesterday. Yeah, I said under my breath before opening my car door and stepping out to talk to the man. The weather by the school was nice and warm, much warmer than outside of my house. It felt like it was summer. I mean, I had to hear about what happened here. I laughed as I leaned on my car. So, what can you tell me? I tried to look it up on the internet, but I didn't find anything. I told the man. I figured that I had some time to kill before trying to figure out what to do about my head. My first thought was maybe a tumor, but that wouldn't clearly explain why the pain came and went depending on where I was at. The man stood up fully and put his weight on his rake. Four kids were killed here a couple of years ago. Four more before that, and four more before that. He waved his hand as if he was telling me a fairy tale or something. Like he was telling me something that didn't sound extremely serious. Each time there was a murder, they got more and more gruesome. He said solemnly. Five kids were supposed to die each time, but one always got away. He explained before turning to face the school. The murders left our whole city divided. Blame was thrown all over. Some thought the killer was a teacher. Others thought that it was a parent. He said before turning back to face me. I'm surprised you don't remember this, he told me. I didn't. I had never heard anything about the murders. So, who actually did it? I asked as I shoved my hands into my pockets. No one knows. The man said as he moved to continue tending to the grass in the same spot. He moved over and over again, but the grass never changed. Wait, 12 teenagers were murdered and they never caught the person who did it. I was baffled. 13, the man corrected me. The last time there was a murder, it was supposed to be twins. Two girls, he said as he adjusted his hat. One of the girls survived though, youngest of the bunch, he shrugged. Uh, survivors would be turning 16 this year, he pointed out to me before starting to walk away. I had so many questions and the most pressing one was, who exactly was this guy and why had he been tending to the same spot of grass for two days now? That was a lot of murder and nobody had told me. No one called. I never heard about anything like that in the news and for the life of me, I couldn't find anything about the school or the town on the internet. I got back in my car and went to leave. My curiosity was now satiated. As I got to the end of the parking lot, that pain came back and it came back with a vengeance. I felt like somebody was drilling a screwdriver into my forehead. I slammed into the brakes and backed up. I went back to the property of the school and put my teeth together. Something wanted me to be here. As I moved my hand to clean the blood trickling out of my nose and down my lips, I considered my options. I thought that I was going insane. I considered driving to the clinic but if my vision went out again, I would accidentally kill someone. For a moment I considered calling 911. But in the back of my mind, I knew that was a bad idea. Something wanted me to be here. My hands tightened around my steering wheel and I closed my eyes. I mean, a nap wouldn't hurt after all.
who was going to bother me. I woke up to a knocking at my window. It was the groundskeeper. I had to rub my eyes and make sure that it was him. Why was he at my car window? I rolled the window down. Hey. He tossed a flashlight onto my lap. You're going to need that. He told me as he walked away. I don't think I've ever been more confused in my life. These last few days have been something else. I grabbed the flashlight and jumped out of my car like I was moving on autopilot. Something wanted me to go to the school. Deep down, I think I wanted to go in too. I felt like I was both in and out of my body, like I was extremely tired but also extremely awake. It was a weird feeling to feel like I was being torn in half. I walked up to the front doors and opened them. I was honestly surprised that they weren't locked up. The main hallway was exactly how I had remembered it. Our mascot, the Green Ridge Gecko, was stamped right in the middle of the floor. The downstairs area was dedicated to electives in the lunchroom. The auditorium was to my left behind the big brown doors. The gym was further in and the lunchroom was to the right. And despite the building looking worn down on the outside, the inside of the building was in great condition. Hello? Hello? I called, hearing my voice echoing was strange. This place used to be so full of noise, I wasn't expecting an answer. My blood ran cold when a scream came from the auditorium. It cut through the silence like a warm knife through butter. I turned as quickly as I could and ran for the doors. I stopped at the seats furthest in the back. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. A hooded figure wearing a sleek red mask was holding a girl by her neck. Her toes couldn't touch the ground. Both figures were blue, almost completely see-through. The figure plunged a knife into the girl's abdomen three times. Each time the knife was ripped out, the victim gagged and eventually the killer slammed her body down and continued at it. The final blow landing right between her eyes. What the... I spit out before turning to the door to run away. I was going to go get the cops. Maybe they could catch this guy. I assumed it was the same killer that the groundskeeper was talking about. As I left the auditorium, a blue figure came walking past me. It was the same girl who was just on the stage. I could recognize her white jacket. I reached my hand out to grab her arm and was shocked to find that I could. She looked completely see-through, almost like a ghost. You can't go in there, I told her seriously. You're going to die, I warned. I watched her face, a twist in confusion. As I turned to look back into the auditorium, I could see the masked figure waiting for her on the stage. We made eye contact. I tightened my grip on the girl's arm and pulled her out of the doorway. A blue spark appeared at the edge of the door and the rim of the doorway lit up with a baby blue color. What is that? The girl asked me. She looked beyond confused and I was right there with her. I tugged at her again. Follow me. I watched her body materialize. I watched as the color came back to her skin. I could see the color return to her eyes. I watched her face come back to life. I almost threw up. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You're alive, I mumbled. I could see the tears gathering in her eyes. I was stabbed, she told me. 
Well, not anymore, I said with confidence. Now we're leaving. I pointed to the front door and we started to run for it when I heard screaming catch the air behind us. In a flash, I turned around and I backed up with the girl. An axe hit the door from on top of the stairs. A man wearing a mascot head was standing on the stairs holding another axe. Are you kidding me? I screamed before turning to the door to open it. As my hand hit the door, an axe hit my wrist. I screamed out and watched my hand hit the floor. My world was becoming a blur. I slowly reached down to pick up my hand. Blood was pooling on the floor. We have to run, the girl screamed at me, but I could barely focus. I felt a sharp pain in my shoulder. The world was ringing. The next thing I knew, my legs were moving. I turned my head slightly and there was a smaller axe sticking out of my shoulder. I thought that I was going to lose my arm. The girl was dragging me. Once we had hit the emergency exit, I thought that she was going to disappear. I thought that everything would disappear, but it didn't. Instead, we went running across the parking lot in the back and looped around to my truck. The hospital, I mumbled. I'll drive, she said before helping me into the passenger seat. The rest of what happened is all a blur. I know that we got to the hospital and I know that I was there for a while and I know that we eventually went back to my house. I was in and out of it throughout most of the process. Heck, I don't even really remember the hospital visit. My hand and arm are completely wrapped up. Both cuts were clean. The lapses in my memory are scaring the heck out of me. And this girl is still with me. She says that her name is Kira. We have a lot of talking to do. Kira and I had to lay low for a while after what had happened at the high school. My left hand was completely unusable. Luckily, they were able to reattach it to my wrist. My shoulder is still recovering, but it'll be a while until I can use my left arm. We decided to take a few days to gather our thoughts and go over what we know. Kira filled me in on what she could remember and I shared what I could remember. Together, we were able to put some major pieces to this puzzle in place. Kira told me that she didn't fully remember being attacked in the auditorium. Most of that day was a complete blur for her. She told me that she was on the stage to help set up for a school play. Nobody else was there yet, and she had just left her science class. I asked her if she remembered the person in the mask the one who had lifted her and killed her. My first thought was maybe this was a bully or somebody that she had bullied. She did remember the killer but told me that he felt too strong to be another student. He lifted her up with ease and held her like she was made of paper. And Kira told me that she had clawed his wrist but by the time that he had his hand around her neck, she felt like she couldn't move. She detailed how it felt to be strangled and the pain that shot through her body when he slammed her onto the stage. She had a scar on her nose where I saw the knife land. I asked her about it and she said she didn't remember how she got it. We talked on the couch for hours. I asked her if she had noticed anything weird at school that day and she told me that she didn't. What stood out to me was that she didn't remember the murders happening. At this point in our conversation, I made a note to get the names of all the victims and, if I could, and these survivors too. 
Maybe I could pinpoint the exact date when she was murdered. Why did you grab me? Kira eventually asked me. She had been crying for hours and I was surprised that she still wanted to talk. I told her that I had watched her die and I felt compelled to do something to try and help her. I confessed that I wasn't sure I would be able to grab her arm but once I realized I could, I knew that I had to do everything possible to keep her from going back to the stage. Someone commented last time about how I took Kira from death and I couldn't agree more. Somehow I was able to reach into wherever she was and pull her out of there. Finally, I asked her about the axe-wielding man who tried to kill both of us. She told me that that was the first time she had ever seen that person, and we both agreed that we didn't want to meet him again. That night, I took out an old notebook and decided to write some things down. I knew for sure that I would be going back to Greenridge High School. It was only a matter of time before the headaches returned. For the moment, I am calling the two murderers. Red face and mascot killer. I know the names suck, but whatever. I noted that mascot killer was found at the top of the stairs. Kira told me that he never came downstairs to chase us. Red face never left the auditorium, so we assume that is where he'll always be found. I know it's a big stretch to say they will never leave where we've seen them, but if Red face had wanted Kira so badly, I felt like he would have come after us anyway. After taking my notes, I went to sleep. We spent the next few days staying inside and away from the windows. I had to assume that people thought that Kira was dead, so seeing her walking around would raise a lot of red flags. You're going back. Kira snapped at me as she watched me pack up a small backpack. Yes, I have to go back. I told her seriously as I put my flashlight under my good arm. I was wondering if I would see the groundskeeper again. In the back of my mind, I felt like he knew what was going to happen when I walked into the school. You only have one good arm. Kira pointed out as she followed me around the house. I know. I sighed before placing some money on the counter. That's for food. But only order food as a last resort. We still have some leftovers. I opened the fridge to double check and make sure that there was enough food for her to heat up if she got hungry. Let me help you, Kira pleaded with me. No, if we're seen by anyone, they will have a lot of questions. Plus, I'm not putting you in the crosshairs of a bunch of murderers, I said seriously. I took my car keys from the table and stopped at the front door. If I don't come back, dye your hair or something and get out of here. I told Kara before opening the front door and heading out to my car. I waited on the steps to make sure that she locked the door. The last time that I made this drive, everything was foggy. I was in a lot of pain and it felt like everything around me was only going to get worse. This time, despite feeling waves of uncertainty pouring over my body, I felt clear. I felt like for the first time in a long time, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do at least as far as going back to school was concerned. As I pulled up to Greenridge High School, I scanned the area for the groundskeeper. I was surprised he wasn't sitting in the same spot that he always was. I parked my car and I walked up to the building. 
I probably should have at least taken Kira with me to be the getaway driver in case I got injured again. Back so soon, the groundskeeper asked me. I nearly jumped out of my skin when I heard his voice. I turned around and sure enough there he was, holding his rake and wearing the same clothes that he was wearing the last time that I saw him. Are you trying to give me a heart attack? I gasped. I didn't hear him coming up behind me. He only laughed and walked back to the grass to continue working. I watched him for a second before moving my flashlight to try and open the door. I eventually got it, but I really should have taken Kira with me. Walking back into the school was like walking through a thick fog. It felt like I had to force myself through the doorway. I turned my head to see if the axe mark was still in the door and sure enough it was. My blood was still on the floor too. I was attacked in here. This time I had felt incredibly clear in the building though. It was a weird feeling to know exactly where I needed to be. I was not going to go to the second floor with one hand, so I decided to continue on the first floor. I had my choice of the lunchroom or the gym, and I went with the gym. As I walked towards it, I took a second to look around me. There was no sign of mascot killer or red face. The gym was down a hallway like the lunchroom. The locker rooms were divided by the office for the coach. As I walked down the hallway, I heard rustling coming from the girls' locker room. Eventually, the rustling turned into screaming. At first, I didn't want to open the door, though. When the second scream interrupted the silence, I ripped the door open. The locker room was an absolute mess. Blood painted the walls, but it was very old. Get away from me! I heard a girl scream. I ran through the room before finding the girl, and I couldn't believe my eyes. The girl was wearing a gym uniform. Unlike Kira, her outline was green. She was still see-through, though. The man standing behind her looked like a giant in comparison. He was wearing the school's hockey uniform and a hockey mask. I reached out to see if I could reach the girl before she was murdered. She ran backward, though, placed her foot on the wall, and boosted herself up to the window. I watched her climb out. She wasn't killed. I didn't have too much time to think about it because the killer turned his attention to me. He was see-through for a second. I watched as his skin slowly appeared. In a matter of seconds, he was becoming whole. I turned as quickly as possible, nearly tripping on clothes, and ran back down the hallway as fast as I could. I was running away from the gym and this killer was following me. I heard his hockey stick hit the wall when he tried to swing it at my back. The moment that I was out of the hallway, the killer stopped following me. He was just standing there right at the end, watching me. He wasn't as big as I thought he was, and he was probably about 6'4 or 6'5, but not ginormous. He did have massive shoulders, though, and his clothing was caked in dry blood. As he stood there watching me, I couldn't help but wonder, who did he kill? It looked like he was guarding the hallway, so I decided to back up and head to the lunchroom instead. I clenched the flashlight tightly, fully expecting somebody to come running at me the moment that I opened the lunchroom doors. I had to push on these doors hard. Something was blocking them from the other side. I was eventually able to get one of the doors open with my good shoulder. I could hear the table scraping the floor as I pushed the door open. 
The room was an absolute disaster. Somebody was clearly trying to barricade the door shut. The tables were set up in a way to keep the doors pinned. From across from where I was standing, I could see the same setup on the other side of the room. As I walked further into the lunchroom, I called. Is anybody in here? I'm not here to hurt you. I stopped walking for a second to wait for an answer. When I didn't get one, I continued to explore the room. I almost gave up before I noticed one of the tables that was still right side up had a book sitting on it. I walked over and put my flashlight in my mouth and brought the book closer to me. It was a school yearbook, but something was wrong with it. It was a white book with our mascot on it. Nothing about it looked special and there was no year. I was going to look through it, but I heard the door creak open behind me. I forgot to put the tables back where I had found them. I quickly put the book in my backpack and took the flashlight in my good hand. The moment that I got light in the door, something slammed into my leg with enough force to bring me to my knees. I looked down, large glass shards were sticking out of my skin. I looked up to see where the attack came from and that's when I saw her. She was wearing a long white coat and large circular glasses that I hadn't seen anybody wearing in a long time. She had a tall glass in her hand. She must have thrown one at me. I quickly forced myself up and went for an exit before remembering that all of the doors except the one that I came in from, I had to run around her to get out. As I ran towards the woman, I tried to sidestep her. She slammed the glass into my back and I stumbled forward. I thought that she would be weaponless now, but as I turned around to see if she was chasing me, I watched a new glass cup start to take shape in her hand. I took two steps back and I ran for the door. I managed to use my foot to push it open fully before being hit in the back again. Luckily, she was only throwing glass at me. It was something that I knew I could walk off. I ran for the front door expecting mascot killer to be waiting at the top of the steps but he wasn't there. I could hear the woman leaving the lunchroom. As I tucked the flashlight under my bad arm I ripped the front door open and practically threw myself outside. See you soon. The groundskeeper called to me as I ran to my truck. I jumped inside and pulled some glass out of my knee before driving home. After I got back from my last trip to the school I went to bed. I decided to fill Kira in when she woke up in the morning. I set my flashlight on the coffee table and pulled the yearbook out of my backpack. I figured we could go over the book together in the morning. That's insane. Kira snapped at me as she paced around the living room. I know it sounds crazy, but she climbed out of the window and got away. I told Kira as I watched her dart around the living room. If she got away, why was she still glowing? Kara asked me. She had a good point and I didn't have an answer for her. I honestly don't know. I said as I sat on the couch. And who was in the lunchroom? Do you think someone else is looking around the school? Kira asked me as she sat in the recliner for a second before getting up to pace again. I have no idea, I mumbled. Well, we need to get an idea. Kira snapped at me. I didn't have enough energy to yell at her. I knew why she was getting so worked up about all of this. Headaches might have been drawing me to the school, but she died there and we still didn't know who killed her and why. 
while we can look at the yearbook, I suggested to her, We have to go back to the school and see if somebody is there looking around, Kira said. I shook my head no. We have clues now, okay? Let's check out this yearbook, I said again, this time using my good arm to flip the book open. When I saw what was inside, my heart sank. The first few pages were empty. I flipped through the book faster, every single page was empty. In a fit of rage, I slammed the book shut and tossed it across the room. I got hit with glass for no reason and we were back to square one. We had nothing. Kira flinched back as she watched the book hit the floor. Sorry, I said seriously. I wasn't trying to scare her. It's okay. Kira whispered as she sat on the chair. I could see it on her face. She was feeling hopeless. There was nothing that I could do to assure her that we would find anything. Tomorrow, we will go back and get answers. Come hacker high water, but we have to be prepared first. I told Kira as I got off the couch. Gear, food, water, and a weapon are a must. I trailed on as I walked to my bedroom. I grabbed an extra backpack and brought it out to Kira. We're gonna get answers, I said seriously as I handed her the bag. Kira took it inside. What do you want me to do? Fill up the water bottles in the kitchen. I'm gonna head to the store. I told her as I grabbed my car keys and left. The moment that I started driving away from the house, my headache started coming back. It wasn't as strong as all the other ones and it was something that I could push through to make sure that I got what we needed. I couldn't go too far because the further that I went, the worse that the headache became. I had to settle for going to the corner store. I got us more water, some food, and each one of us a special drink. I got myself a soda and Kira an apple juice because she had killed three bottles of juice already. I made sure to grab food that would last and snacks because I knew that we could eat them quickly. The challenge was finding anything that we could use that might make a decent weapon. I didn't end up finding anything and we were going to have to use what I had in the house. Finally, I bought some gum and scratch-off tickets. I used the last of my cash to buy a small flashlight for Kira. It wasn't anything amazing, but at least she would have one if she needed it. I packed up the car and I started to head home. Once again, the closer that I got to my house, the more that the headache began to lift. I was starting to wonder what Forrest was drawing me back to the school and what it wanted with me in the first place. You got some juice? Kira asked as she went to grab the bottle. I laughed and held it away from her. I did, but you have to put it in your bag. I said seriously as I handed her the bottle. Are you expecting us to be inside for a long time? Kira asked me while she was helping me pack the backpacks. If we get stuck, we need to make sure that we have supplies. When I was in the lunchroom, I noticed that somebody had barricaded the doors. If I had to guess, they spent the night or at least were using the room as a base of sorts. I explained to Kira as we took our bags to my car and climbed inside. Before we go in, I have to check something out with the groundskeeper. I told her as we drove to Green Ridge High School. The school doesn't have one, Kira said confused. When I was in school we did, but this guy is different I think. He tends the same plot of grass for hours, 
I said as we pulled into the school. I wanted to jump out and check the grass right away, but he was standing on it. He was working the same way that he was the last time that I saw him. At least I knew where he was this time. I parked the car and froze. There was another car sitting in the parking lot. Someone else is here, I told Kira as I hopped out of the car. From where we were standing, I could tell that the car was empty. Maybe we should check the car. Kira suggested as she grabbed her bags. No. I shook my head and took my bag with my good arm. Kira handed me my flashlight and we walked toward the building. Checking the car could be a good idea, but I didn't want to give someone a reason to call the cops on us. We have to go to the main office first, I told Kira. I wasn't going to leave any room for discussion. The main office could have many useful things. I was hoping for an employee log, keys, or anything of importance. As we walked through the first floor, I told Kira to stay away from the hallway that leads to the gym. He also kept an eye out for the woman who was throwing glass at me. I was sure that she must be able to walk around the halls freely, if she was in the lunchroom. And what if there's a killer in there? Kira asked as we finally reached the main office. We were fortunate that everything we needed so far was on the first floor. To get to the main office, we had to continue down the front hallway, towards the elective rooms. Well, we run, I whispered to Kira. I gave her my flashlight and we went to open the office door. And surprisingly, it actually opened for us. Kira screamed at the top of her lungs. A voice from the door snapped. Be quiet. The door opened fully and a woman looked out at us and moved the door to let us in. Kira quickly moved into the main office and I followed after her. The blonde woman locked the door before turning to us. She was pointing a kitchen knife at me. Who are you and why are you here? The woman asked me. Caleb, my name is Caleb and this is Kira. Who are you? I asked the woman as I kept my good hand up. Cassandra, she said as she reached out to tap each of us. I was confused for a moment, but she must have been making sure that we were real. I wasn't expecting anybody else to be here. Cassandra told me once she was done with her inspection. Neither were we, I told her honestly. Were you the one who left the blank yearbook in the lunchroom? I asked her as I started moving around the office. I was looking for student records, keys, or anything that we could use to help us finally get answers. Yes. I couldn't figure out what to do with it and I had to get going. Cassandra told me as she watched me look around. There was nothing of note in the first area of the office. I couldn't find any records, it was like the whole place had been cleaned out. Why is this place empty? I questioned Cassandra. I was hoping she would tell me that we had arrived as she was cleaning the place out. I was wondering the same thing. I haven't checked the principal's office yet. Cassandra told me as she motioned to the only other door in this room. Why the heck did you bring a kid here? Cassandra asked me. Well, I found her here. I explained to Cassandra as I tested the door to the principal's office. He saved my life, Kira corrected. She was a spirit, I think. I told Cassandra as I opened the door. I was expecting her to be surprised. I thought she would laugh at me or think that I was joking. 
and green, blue, red, or orange. Cassandra asked me as she and Kira followed me into the office. She was bluish, I guess. Why? As I asked Cassandra, I went right over to the desk in the room and opened every drawer. Eventually, I found a set of keys. And because I was wondering if you figured out what the colors were for, Cassandra sighed. I looked up at both of them and smiled. I finally found something useful, I said as I put the key ring on the desk. That's a lot of keys. Kira said as she walked over to examine the key ring. One of those has to be a skeleton key. Cassandra told us as she went through the filing cabinets. I could hear her swearing and slamming things shut. What? Kira asked her. Every file is empty. Cassandra snapped as she slid her hands through her hair. I could tell that we were both thinking the same thing. Someone had to have been here before us. The only other person that I've seen here has been the groundskeeper. I haven't seen him enter the building, but maybe he came in here to clean the place out. Once we had finished looking around the room, Cassandra put the empty files on the desk. Lucky for us, they were still labeled. I went through each of the names on the empty files. Ava Miller, Liam Cooper, Mason Kent, Harper Scott, Grace Thompson, and Lucas Reed. There weren't enough files for all of the murdered teenagers and the ones who went away, but this was a good place to start. I took the folders into my backpack and looked up at Cassandra. Why are you here? I asked her seriously. For all I knew, she could be hiding her crimes. My brother died here and my sister Hannah got away. I was away from school when I got the phone call. By the time that I got here, my family's house was packed up and most of the furniture was already gone. Cassandra closed her eyes tightly. My sister left me a note in my old bedroom. It said that she had run away, but she didn't leave an address or any indication as to where she would be going. I've been looking for her for months. Cassandra said as she opened her eyes to look at me and Kira. I had a lot of questions that I wanted to ask, but before I could, we hear screaming coming from the hallway. We ran around the girls to get to the office door. What are you doing? Cassandra snapped as she followed me. I can help them, I snapped back. You only have one arm, Kira tried to remind me. I let my head hang out of the doorway for a second. The commotion was coming from closer to the art rooms. I slowly left the office and walked down the hallway. I was trying to keep my boots as quiet as possible. I turned the corner to the art rooms and I watched as a see-through man slammed a boy into the locker's face first. The boy was glowing orange. After a few more slams, the man lifted the boy and slammed him into the floor. I watched as the tile crashed under the weight. I heard a loud snapping sound. I'm assuming the boy passed when his neck hit the floor. I waited for a second to see if there was anything that I could do. The killer walked over to the trash can at the end of the hallway. It was also glowing. This was the first time that an object was glowing. The yellow glow from the trash can illuminated the killer just enough for me to see his coaching jacket. Most of the back of the jacket was ripped apart. It looked like a cat or something had clawed a massive slash marks into it. I watched as he slowly pulled a girl from the trash can. She coughed and spit blood all over him. She looked different too. Her glow was red and despite everything being see-through, 
she was the most clear to me. She screamed at him, hit him in the face, and she was fighting back, but it didn't matter. Using her leg, he slammed her from locker to locker like she was weighing nothing. I couldn't watch him kill her. It was hard enough to listen to it. Once he was done, I turned my head to look back down the hallway. The images were fading away. Last time this happened, I was able to intercept Kira before she was murdered in the auditorium. I waited until the killer faded completely before rushing down the hallway. As I ran down the hallway to see if I could interfere with the trash can, Kira spoke from behind me. What are you doing? I'm gonna save two more people, I hissed to Kira. You and Cassandra pick a spot to hide or get ready to help me, I instructed. I filled them in on what I knew and both of the girls hid around a corner. All three of us waited. The moment that I heard the girl's voice, I looked up. She wasn't coming from upstairs, instead she was coming out of the girl's bathroom behind me. Her face was already cut up and she was clearly upset about something. I quickly turned around and ran over to her. I put my arm out to grab her, unlike Kira, I couldn't grab her right away. There was a force pushing me back but I didn't care. No one deserved to die the way that she did. I just kept pushing. Listen! I screamed at the girl. She couldn't hear me. I was assuming she was attacked before the boy. She had already been put into the trash can before the boy was attacked, and we were running out of time. You're going to die, Cassandra screamed from the end of the hallway. The girl looked up confused. She heard Cassandra, but she couldn't hear me. I had no time to think about why. I reached forward and took her by the arm ripping her out of wherever she was proved to be a challenge. I was fighting with something and there was another force that wanted her. Once I got her out and watched the color return to her skin, her school jacket had blood all over the front of it. I moved to get her down the hallway into Cassandra. Once I get the boy, we're going to have to run for it, I said. Cassandra took the girl and watched me go back down the hallway. The boy was coming out of one of the art rooms, but something was wrong. The killer was already here. I could see him at the end of the hallway. Run! Kira snapped as we watched the killer start running down the hallway. I ran over to the boy and grabbed him by his collar. I tried to spin us around to get out. I could feel his hands wrap around my wrist as we fell and squirmed on the floor. I quickly brought him to his feet. Like the girl, he was clearly confused about what had just happened to him. Run! Kira screeched. I turned my head and pushed the boy backward, his back hitting the locker. I could see Kira running down the hallway. I watched as she took him by the hand and we started running. Crap! Cassandra snapped as we turned the corner. I screamed loudly and almost fell to my knees. Something hit my back. I tried to reach back and pull it out while we were running. Once I finally got it, I was looking at glass. The scientist is here. I screamed at the group. Something felt different about this chase. Something felt more visceral. Watch out! Cassandra screamed as a baseball smacked Kira. It hit her in the side with enough force to knock her over. The boy stopped running to help her up. Kira spit blood out all over the floor. I stopped running to see where the attack came from. There was a guy holding a baseball bat standing at the back door. 
His eyes were bright red and his baseball bat was glowing yellow. You have got to be kidding me. I screamed as we all ran for the front door. This time, I was going to be ready for the mascot killer. Watch the stairs, I screamed at Cassandra. She moved just in time to have a hatchet miss her arm. I could hear the man laughing from the stairs. Cassandra ripped the doors open and we all ran out. I could hear my heart beating in my head. The adrenaline was almost too much for me to handle. Feeling the fresh air on my face as a nice reminder that we got out of the school. But I was extremely confused to see that the sun was up. Get to my car, I screamed at Kira. What about you? Kira called back to me as they continued running across the parking lot. I made a note to park closer to the building next time. There's something that I have to do. I screamed back as I ran over to where the groundskeeper was tending the dirt. I ran over to the dirt and dug my good hand into it. I was trying to move as fast as possible. I could hear Kira screaming behind me, but I couldn't make out what she was saying. As I dug through the dirt, I could hear something running next to me. I looked up and saw the groundskeeper coming. His face was twisted and distorted. His eyes were sunken in and he was running like an animal. I was digging as fast as I could and eventually I found something. I ripped it out of the dirt and got up and I was holding a hot pink diary. As I turned to run away, something slammed into my leg. This time, I could feel blood trickling down my pants and into my boot. I looked down to see a gardening tool sticking out of my skin. I clenched the book and screamed. I was sure that he was going to kill me. I watched his jaw crack and pop as he closed in. I closed my eyes and heard my car screech. I looked up to see Kira behind the wheel. The boy was holding my flashlight like a weapon, shining it at the man. The light hit him and made him screech. I watched as he ran away, going behind the school. I felt a hand grab my arm and I was sure that it was another killer, but no, it was Cassandra. She pulled me to my feet and got me in her car. Kira, drive home, I screamed. Cassandra and I watched as Kira started to leave the school grounds. We followed as closely as possible. As Cassandra drove, I looked at the small book in my hand. We finally had answers. We went through the diary page by page and what we found was extremely disturbing. I can't take you through every page here, so I'm going to give you some of the highlights. The diary belonged to Taylor Brown and she was a student at the high school at some point. All of the dates on top of each page were scribbled out by her pen though, and for a good reason. Taylor wrote about all the weird and unexplained things that she was seeing in the high school. On multiple occasions, teachers would quit or disappear, only to be back in the school a couple of days later. Notably, her science teacher quit four times and each time she came back. Taylor wrote about how the woman was clearly unstable going as far as to toss rulers at her students, but nobody found this odd. Another page talked about how she followed the custodian one afternoon because he had been watching a student all day. The student's name was scribbled out. She followed him to the basement where she said the walls were pulsing and moving. She said it looked like the basement was breathing. She did not stay down there to look around. We also learned something troubling. Apparently, Taylor knew Kira. There are pages upon pages talking about their friendship. 
They were in drama class together. Taylor said that she didn't get a major role like Kira. Notably, Taylor was in school the day that Kira was murdered. She wrote about how the police came to remove her body, but the rest of the school day went on like nothing had happened. Kira didn't have a funeral. We filled Kira in on everything we read, but she didn't remember Taylor. She couldn't remember what play she was in either. Cassandra and I decided not to push her too hard, and instead focused on what we did know. Before we left for our last trip, we organized all the information that we already knew. We saved Kira Jones. We learned her last name from Taylor's diary. Kira did remember her last name once we had said it to her. We also had saved Hunter James and Coraline Clark. Kira was glowing blue. Coraline was glowing red and Hunter was glowing orange. All of the killers were the same color except for the man with the baseball bat. I went through the list of killers with Cassandra. The red mask killer is the man who murdered Kira in the auditorium. We haven't seen him since the first day we went back and we are still under the assumption that he is stuck in the auditorium. We are not sure it's even a man though. The killer mascot is always upstairs in an area that we haven't explored and will not be exploring anytime soon. He wears the school mascot head and tosses hatchets. The hockey mask killer was in the gym hallway, an area that I would have liked to explore more. In the girls' locker room, I saw a girl escape out of the window and she was glowing green. We suspect that the girl who was glowing green made it out alive, but we have nothing else to go on regarding her. The woman who throws glass beakers is probably the same woman who Taylor was writing about. And finally the killer who had murdered Coraline and Hunter. He was wearing a coach jacket. Cassandra and I believe that all of the killers were teachers or faculty. We could only confirm this if we had anyone's names. Cassandra and I took the list of names in our backpacks and we left the trio of teenagers at my house and took her car. I figured I would leave mine for Kira in case they needed a way to leave the house. We stressed the importance of all of them staying inside. So what is our goal exactly if this is the last time that we're going in? Cassandra asked me as we got in her car. We have to investigate the basement. I responded as I buckled up. The drive to the school felt somber. The only reason that I wanted to check the basement was because I was sure that we would finally find some answers. A room that breathes has to mean something in the grand scheme of things. As we pulled up to the school, I opened the door and I looked out for the groundskeeper. He wasn't outside, but it looked like he had put the dirt in the hole that I made. We should park right out front, I suggested to Cassandra. I think the door to the basement is in the first staircase, Cassandra said as she pulled up and we got out of the car. I was armed with my flashlight while Cassandra had a flashlight and a crowbar. Walking into the high school for the last time felt different. I waited by the door for a second to make sure that we weren't going to be jumped. Do you think the school gets angry when we remove a spirit? Cassandra asked me as we moved through the hallways. Well, it would make sense. We were fine last time until we decided to help Coraline and Hunter. I agreed with Cassandra as we slowly checked each of the doorways. Neither of us could remember this part of the building. I wonder if Kira was murdered because Taylor was getting curious. 
I mumbled as we opened the door to a classroom. It is weird that school went on that day like nothing happened. Cassandra said as she tried to step into a classroom. I watched her face hit a barrier. Cassandra took two steps back and grabbed her nose with her free hand. What the? I asked. I walked over to the classroom and put my foot out. My boot hit an invisible wall. We couldn't enter this classroom or any of the other classrooms that we tried. We both thought that it was weird but decided to keep looking for the staircase. I don't think the groundskeeper is evil. I sighed to Cassandra. He tried to kill you, she pointed out. When we found the staircase, I entered first. I knew that we had to go down, but I tried to use the stairs to go up and find another invisible barrier. I made a note of it and turned around to go downstairs. He was helpful before I messed with his dirt, I told Cassandra. She opened her mouth to respond to me, but quickly shut it when we heard whistling coming from the next floor down. I readied my flashlight, fully prepared to hit a killer over the head with it. I had its name all figured out. I was going to call it the Whistler. When we turned the corner, we were both surprised to see an old man standing over a mop bucket. He was cleaning the floor. Hello? Cassandra called out to him. I could see her gripping the crowbar harder. The man put the mop back into the bucket and smiled at Cassandra. A spirit medium and a spirit walker come to see the heart of the school. He asked us as he added more soap to the bucket. What? Cassandra asked. The heart? Like when we open this door, a heart will be inside, I asked. He only laughed at us. Inside you'll find the place where it all started. You'll know what to do when you get there. But be warned... Everything about your lives will change when you go inside. He said as he reached into his pocket. He reached out and handed me two batteries. Your flashlight will need those. He warned me as he went up the stairs. We stood there in silence for a moment. My flashlight battery eventually went out. I was pretty surprised and grateful to the man for giving me a new set. Are you sure we should go in there? Cassandra asked me as we looked at the door. Our lives have already changed a lot. How could it possibly get weirder? I said as I watched Cassandra reach for the doorknob. I hope you didn't jinx us. Cassandra grumbled as she slowly opened the door. As we walked into the basement, we were hit with the smell of old air and gasoline. I crinkled my nose and continued pushing forward. We used our flashlights to scan as much of the room as possible. Eventually, Cassandra's flashlight settled on the west wall and we slowly walked over. From where we were standing, we could make out a lot of pictures. As we got closer, we both had to take a second and process what we were seeing. There were pictures of each of the students on the wall, each one connected to a thin red wire. Each student's picture was connected to a different killer. Rarely did students seem to share a killer. Kira, Hunter, and Coraline were all there. Each one is connected to the killer that had murdered them. I watched Cassandra reach up and take a picture of a blonde girl off the wall. Your sister, I asked her. Hannah, Cassandra said through gritted teeth. 
There is a picture next to Hannah's. That kid didn't make it. Cassandra pulled his picture down too. I assumed that she knew him. Everything was here, even Taylor had a picture. She wrote for the school newspaper. The teenagers who were murdered had red wire and the ones who got away had green wire. Taylor didn't have any wire attached to her picture. Instead, her picture was plastered in the middle of the board next to a man that we didn't recognize. Some guy named Noah. There was too much here for us to get a good look at it. Plus, all of the papers and notebooks under the board. Somebody spent a lot of time putting this together. The longer that I looked at everything, the more that I realized I didn't know this place at all. This was not the school I remembered. Pack up everything. I told Cassandra as I put my light down to start filling my backpack with as much as I could carry. This is unbelievable, Cassandra said as she shoved as much as possible into her bag. We had to take the board apart to make everything fit. Once we finished, I took my light and pointed it further down the hallway. Something was coming. I could hear boots hitting the floor. Before I could shout at Cassandra to brace herself, something hit my body. It wasn't a bad feeling by any means. A wave of cold had washed over me. My heart was beating frantically, yet I felt still. My head felt heavy for a moment before it all came rushing back to me. My name is Caleb and I never went to this school. I went to a private school and the memories that I had of this place were mostly fabricated. I could see my life flashing before my eyes. I saw my mom sending me to the school bus. I saw my father taking me to my football games. I had no real memories of Green Ridge High School. Something drew me here. Something wanted me here. Caleb! Cassandra snapped me as she pulled me to my feet. Holy crap, I said as I grabbed Cassandra by her forearm. Did you see that? I asked her. Yes. Cassandra gasped as another wave of air washed over us. The air wasn't strong enough to knock us down this time, so we both decided to continue pushing forward. I was going to get answers. As we went deeper into the basement, the waves of air got stronger until eventually we found what was causing it. In the middle of the floor, a young man was sitting hunched over a book. He was glowing red, a bright red, almost like Coraline was. I could see the blood running down his face. The drops of red were hitting the glowing yellow book. Hello? Cassandra called to the boy. You need to leave, the boy warned. He looked up at us and clenched the book harder. She's coming, he screamed. I didn't have a chance to ask who was coming before I heard a loud scream. I moved my flashlight up as quickly as possible, but something threw me back. My feet left the floor and my back hit the wall. I coughed loudly and I fell to my knees. When I looked up, I watched as Cassandra was tossed to the side twice. Her body hit the wall once and was quickly lifted again, and she was slammed again and this time whatever was attacking let her body hit the floor. Nothing was there, nothing was grabbing Cassandra. We were being attacked by air. I quickly scrambled to my feet to try and get to her and that's when I saw the woman. She was wearing a long black dress. Her hair was in a tight bun and her glasses were completely cracked. She screamed at me again and put both of her hands out. I couldn't move. 
My blood felt like it was on fire and my eyes felt like they were going to burst. You have to block her magic, the boy screamed. I could see him doing motions with his arms but I couldn't move. Let him go, Cassandra screamed as she smacked the woman with a crowbar. Black blood flew all over the floor. I felt the woman's hold on me release and I could breathe again. Cassandra swung down to hit the woman again, and I watched as she was flung into the air. Cassandra hit a pipe and landed face first in the ground. I could barely process what was going on. Behind the woman, I could see the boy doing arm motions, so I copied one. I crossed my arms when she reached out to me. I could feel her energy trying to hit me, but nothing was happening. I was sliding back, though. The pain coursing through my bad arm was too intense, but... I knew putting it down was going to be a death sentence. I couldn't keep this up for much longer. Cassandra, you have to get up! I screamed at her. I could hear my arm breaking. I screamed in pain as my back finally hit a wall. I should have left instructions to the trio in case we died. Die! Cassandra screeched as she slammed the crowbar into the back of the woman's head. Her body crumpled forward and black blood hit the floor. We have to go, Cassandra coughed out. Her nose was broken and she had blood all over her lips. The boy, I hissed. Kid? Cassandra called into the darkness. As long as she lives, I can't leave, the boy said to us from somewhere. He was no longer sitting in the middle of the floor. We killed her, I insisted. Cassandra slammed a crowbar through the back of her head. Nobody could live from that. Oh, she'll get back up. Just take the book and go, the boy said. Cassandra reached down and lifted the yellow book from the floor. I felt sick to my stomach and we couldn't just leave him here. But I also knew we were not going to defeat that woman a second time. Once we left the basement and started heading upstairs, we could tell that something had changed within the school. All the lights were on and the power was back. It felt nice to turn off my flashlight. I wondered what we did. We didn't save the boy and apparently we didn't kill that woman. As we walked back into the main hallway, we were both shocked to see the janitor cleaning the floor. Be safe out there, he said to us as we walked by him. Thank you, I told him sincerely. Do you think we won? Cassandra asked me as she leaned back in her seat. No, it feels like we took the band-aid off of a much larger problem. But we saved three people and finally have what we need to get answers, I told Cassandra. She laughed and I laughed with her because we both knew that we could be sorting through all of those papers for weeks. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.